What's up, everybody? John Clash here with a few of my very good, amazing friends that I've known for a really long time and actually just met today. Mm. Uh, but nah, we're, we're here for a panel that um, the Bible Dingers actually came up with. And, uh, Did we? Yeah, I think it was. Oh. I think it was right. you. It was one of you. <laughs> I think it was me, but that's okay. Yeah. I believe it was Andrew. I'm humble, I'm humble. So it was the Bible Dingers. <laughs> He's in the Bible Dingers now. Appreciate your... Uh, the whole time, I promise. Appreciate your false humility. Over there. Uh, Dude, I'm so humble. It's crazy. <laughs> so humble. So you should see my room. Yeah. It's clean, like Jordan no, Peterson said. No pictures of me at all, none. Um, but anyway, so we decided to put this uh, put this panel together and call it the One True Church. Actually, that was uh, that was Angel's idea to call it the One True Church, and we just ran with it. And uh, the reason that we're we're calling it that is because this is something that a lot of people claim. They claim that their denomination or what they believe is the only thing that matters in all of Christendom. And uh, so we just wanna kind of kick that in the face a little bit. And the one true church, we're gonna get into exactly what that means as we go through this, is being united on the essentials. You know, there are many secondary issues that uh, you know, run rampant in the church and they are discussions that we should be having in finding these deep theological truths, but it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, but it's not something that we should be arguing over and, you know, not fellowshipping with each other about. And we'll get into some things that many people claim are secondary that are actually borderlining some heretical false teachings. But for the most part, we're gonna be showing that you can have unity in your differences. So with that being said, we're going to just introduce everybody. Well, they're going to introduce themselves. My name is Jeremy Collins, and I'm a pastor in the EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And I have a YouTube channel that teaches how to learn the Bible, but really from a goal and standpoint of being salt and light in the world. So taking a look at all kinds of things like that. My name is Angel Kiros. I am a Christian who does YouTube stuff. And uh, I, I pretty much just focus on like a little bit of an overlap of culture, politics, and Christianity, and kind of what the conversations are around that. So that's kind of where I place most of my emphasis for my content. My name is Xavier. Um, I have a channel on YouTube. It's called 716. Uh, it's essentially, you know, it's about Matthew 716. And what we like to do there is we like to share good fruits and occasionally expose the bad ones. Um, you know, together with my wife, Adrian, we... We just try to do everything that you know God has for us and go forward with it. I'm LT. I run a YouTube channel as well, the most important job out there. And um, I run a comparative religion channel where I look at a bunch of different religions and see how they line up with each other. My name is Nick, and uh, I'll let Ryan tell you about our YouTube channel, but I'll tell you about our podcast. Uh, we run a podcast that goes through the historical context of each book of the Bible, we go through each book one by one by one, and then we stop along the way and we talk about important topics like Calvinism, Arminianism, and all those important things along the way as you read through scripture like Romans and Ephesians and all those books that, that are debatable with uh, secondary doctrines. We stop there and make sure that we give people, uh, professionals, an opportunity to present the facts on their hermeneutic. My name is Ryan Allen. I'm also part of Bible Dingers, and uh, yeah, that is our audio podcast. We also have a YouTube channel, and we were thinking when we started it that we were for 
more beginner type of Christians, but as we go along, we're realizing uh, that maybe we're for more of the intermediate, and so uh, we're, we're trying to give theological content and biblical context for folks who have been Christians for maybe five, six years, so that you can continue to grow and mature in your faith. All of us, you can find us on a new YouTube channel called the Why Jesus Network. That's why we got the little like symbol thing right there. Uh, that is that is us. So you will see content from all of these guys on there. And if you want to see content that is not on there, you're going to have to go to all of their channels uh, as well. So just real quick, what denomination are you guys? Well, I already said it. I'm EPC, which is a conservative branch of the Presbyterian Church. And so uh, I didn't grow up in that denomination. We'll get into that. But that's that's where I landed right now. So. The church that I belong to is a non-denominational charismatic church. I consider myself more along the lines of reform charismatic, meaning that I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm not cessationist, but I also am not hyper charismatic. And I'm also very introverted, so that plays into it. <laughs> uh, ditto. You know, it's exactly the same thing. I'm, I consider myself non-denominational. I don't, anytime that question comes up, I just say I don't affiliate with a title. Yeah, I don't know what I am. So I grew up Mennonite. Um, so I grew up in the Anabaptist community, which is, I don't know if anyone really knows what that is around here, but um, but I still technically go to a Mennonite church. So I guess by definition, I'm a Mennonite, but my theology doesn't necessarily fall in line with mainline Anabaptist theology. Yeah, I go to a Baptist church. Um, I would say Reformed Baptist church, but we don't do infant baptism and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah. That's where I'm from. I grew up Pentecostal, and then I found myself at Hillsong, and then now I'm a Reformed Baptist. So. <laughs> that's, wow. that's kind of the pattern, you know? <laughs> so I consider myself non-denominational, but uh, out of this group, I'm probably the most dispensational out of everybody. Ew. Blasphemy. <laughs> Blasphemy. We'll see. But uh, it's interesting because I, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and everything like that. So even though the uh, uh, the hyper charismatics would think that I'm like a diehard Calvinist, but uh, that's a whole different video. You're like a we'll, hood John MacArthur. Yeah, some like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So rapid fire questions. What is your favorite secular thing to do play hockey does that count is that is that uh, not secular enough? sinful it's pretty secular how do you have all your teeth i play goalie uh, <laughs> favorite secular be the worst for do. your teeth no you got a full cage you're not uh -huh. gonna get hurt <laughs> interesting um that's a it's a hard one i i, I guess um i really like movies and music so Listening to like alt rock bands, it's probably the most secular thing. Ooh. And I'll get, yeah, I'll get eviscerated for that in the comments. Wow, you're charismatic. I'm charismatic, <laughs> go figure, right? Wow, these dang charismatics. Uh, my answer is just based on, I guess, what my old church would consider secular. I like first person shooter type games, uh, Warzone specifically. Cut his Call mic, Duty. cut his mic, <laughs> cut his mic. <laughs> Hit me up, bro. Call of Duty, <laughs> Call of Duty, man. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess I listen to music and every once in a blue moon when I have time, watch stuff like movies and TV shows, but I don't know. I don't know what I would consider the most secular thing I do. I guess listen to music that's not Christian. 
Uh, I enjoy Marvel movies. Every one that comes out, I'm at the movie theater watching it. I'm with you. I'm there. And you guys want to cut my mic? DC, Marvel, <laughs> all of that stuff. And honestly, cancel me. Because <laughs> Spider-Man ain't going nowhere in my life, bro. Oh, wow. Spider-Man's here to stay. Um, you can make a great megachurch sermon from Marvel movies. Yeah. Just letting you know. That's true. You can yeah. write a book on it. That's true. They did. It they, did. they did. Frank Turk, Yeah, right? Frank Turk wrote yeah, yeah. a book on it. Yep. Yeah, it's terrible. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, my wife and I play Call of Duty every single night together Whoa. online. Ooh, me and my wife too. Yeah. That's bonding. Too online too. Yeah. Yeah. They say curse words. Oh, <laughs> squat up all the time. You have like 12, 12 year olds cursing you out? Every night. Oh. Every night, bro. I got stuck on God of War with my brother uh, the other day. And I'm running around. Uh, you know, it, it makes me want to buy like axes and not wear shirts and uh, and kick doors in and stuff like that. And any time that there's like a, a a bag or a chest, I just want to like smash it to see if there's some money in there. You know, is there <laughs> is there ever money? I heard that there? game's good though. It's a lot of fun. It's I'm very anti-video game. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Well, let's. I haven't begin. played a video game wow. in begin. like 20 years. Let's begin. All right, so let, let's talk about this. Why are you anti-video game? <laughs> um, more so as a prescription for men, I'm anti-video game, um, but I'm not like theologically anti-video game. I just think it's like, I mean, playing it with your wife sounds cool. Maybe when I get married, I'll do that. Ooh. But short of that, get married and then you can play video games okay. if you want. <laughs> yeah. So you got to be manly before yeah, yeah. you play the video games. There's okay. a, you got it. Yeah, got it. I forget who said Define it. Define manly because nowadays we don't, we don't have to. Right. Really well, I'll, I'll use Mark Driscoll's definition because oh. I think he's you know, a pretty, pretty manly guy. Um, we just, we just dive minute, in right bro. into the controversy. He made a, a really cool analogy. He said, uh, video games is where boys go to pretend they're men. Ooh. Wow. And uh, I mean, hey. He said it, not me. That makes I'm sense. On Minecraft you quoted him. Yeah. Huh? You quoted him. That's true. That's true. Yeah, no. And I stand by it. But also, if you're married, it kind of makes it a little different. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like... There's a more feminine side when you get married, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. what I hear. You, you have to be lying. Kind of, what are we talking about here? You got to kind of bring the manliness <laughs> down a little bit. Exactly. When, when, you're, when you're married. Video games. Yeah. yeah. So you shoot people together. Exactly. On, yeah. on It's honestly romantic. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If she ever dies, you know, I come You try to save her. Exactly. He knows. How long have you been a Christian? And this is this is double uh, double sided. Mm. This is a double sided question. How long have you been a Christian? And did you grow up in the church? I grew up in the church. My grandfather was a pastor. My dad's is still a pastor. So as long as I can remember, I've been in the church. But it wasn't until my eighth grade year, like I had accepted Christ, but it didn't really change my life until the summer of my eighth grade year sitting on the porch of a cabin with my counselor, Will. And that's the moment when my life switched from being just a thing my parents do to a thing that is about me. And actually, I promised to God that I'd never be a pastor. And now I am. Got to be careful about There's those very careful promises to God. Yeah. Um, I grew up Roman Catholic, went to Catholic school my whole life up until like junior year of high school. I was planning on going to a private Catholic college even. Um, but that, you know, life situations happen. And I, I came to faith at like 22. Um, and I've been a Christian since then. I'm 34 now. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I've been a Christian all my, all of my life, quote unquote. And the only reason why I say that is because I didn't actually start seeking 
uh, God the way, you know, Christians should until I realized, and we'll talk about this later, until I realized what denomination I was and when, what questions I needed answered. And once I started asking those questions myself and started seeking those questions and seeking my own church, that's when I feel like I, I dedicated myself to, you know, being a Christian. Uh, I grew up in the church, um, and I would say, like, I've always followed a Christian ethic my whole life, but probably when I actually had a relationship with Christ, would have been around the time of high school, roughly. Yeah, I was, I was pretty much born into a Christian family, but my sanctification looked rough, yeah. you know, the early stages of my life. And uh, like Jeremy, I, I swore that I would never be a pastor. And um, I, my mother was trying to get me to go to a Christian college. And I'm like, I don't want to be a pastor. And now I'm in seminary to be a pastor. <laughs> so I didn't promise God that. But, you know, it's funny how that works, how Crazy. you know what your calling is, because kind of God corners you and you have no choice. And you're like, I, I can't think about anything else. I can't dream about anything else. I can't even sleep at night because I want this so bad. And you went from not wanting it at all to it being the only thing you want in life. And I say that for anyone who is, is promising themselves they don't want to be a pastor, just wait. I make a formal declaration, <laughs> I'm never going to be a pastor. <laughs> just wait, buddy. Here comes the law oh, of attraction. Yeah, yeah law of attraction in full effect. I've said something similar to that too. Like I, I've just told myself I could never get into ministry and you know, you're right, here I am. I feel like those are the people you want in ministry, people that don't necessarily want the the accolades and the, the title and all that yeah right? i think that goes for any ministry i mean we can move on um but i think that goes for any ministry not just not just being a pastor if if god is calling you for a specific ministry it's going to be all you think about yeah. yeah yeah um so similar to everybody else i grew up in church in a pentecostal church like i mentioned glory to god he pulled me out of the mud and uh i got saved around 17 or 18 years old and so I've been a Christian for about 15 years now. Nice. I did not grow up Christian at all. And I swore that I would never be a Christian. So here we are. Here we are. Um, it, going back to what you, what you were saying, this is like, I guess, a side note about how, um, how like it just becomes all that you think about, right? Like you just, you're engulfed by doing this. Doing what we do, like our content creation and stuff like that, I never, one, I never thought that content creation would be a, pa <clears throat> a passion of mine, but I definitely never thought Christian content creation would be a passion of mine. So how did you all get into Christian content creation? Triple C's. Let's start it down there. Yeah. Flip around. Um, so I had, I had actually gone to school to learn Bible and theology. Um, Mostly because I was going to do YWAM. I don't know if you guys know Youth with a Mission. Oh, yeah. I was going to go to Africa and attend YWAM in Africa. And I was 18 years old. And my parents sat me down and were like, you're an idiot. So you're not going to go across the world because you can't take care of yourself. They knew you really well, huh? Yeah, they did. And they were like, maybe you should go to Bible college instead. So I was like, all right. And I just, I just kind of went to Bible college. And then I never really did anything with it. And Nick and myself were talking after um, being friends for years about how we felt like we could do ministry and we were just letting our lives, you know, 
do nothing for the sake of the gospel. And so at the time, audio podcasts were like blowing up. It was probably about four or five years ago now. And so that's when we decided, look, let's put this to work. I think that there's a need for people in our generation because biblical illiteracy is a, a serious problem with our generation in the church. And so we decided to just make the audio podcast and we've been doing it for four yeah. or five years now. Nice. Yeah, we wanted to produce a podcast that provided people with seminary level education for Bible, but deliver it in a way where people would love to listen to us. So we kind of brought our per personality into the podcast because we wanted to do it where young people, old people, it doesn't matter. If you enjoy laughing, you'll love us. But then we, we start laughing and then we do a deep dive into things that the common Christian just doesn't know. They don't know historical context. They don't know who wrote a book. They don't know why they wrote the book. They don't know what time it took place. So we were kind of going for that special combination of, of heavy theological richness with joking around and being ourselves. Because we saw that nothing was out there. I mean, besides you guys, so it's just a blessing to, to meet with you because we have similar personalities. But at the time, there was nothing. You know, there were the John MacArthur's, there were the Steve Lawson's, there were the <laughs> Paul Washes, which are all great. But they're just them, and they, they're going right to business. I'm like, what if someone just wants something easier to listen to? And that's what we wanted to provide. Well, I think you guys did a great job of it because your stuff is hilarious. And I learned a lot by listening to it just this morning, the video you sent me. I, I was like, wow, that's a, that's a good point, you know, so keep doing what you're doing. Well, I'm a Gen Zer, so I, it's like mandatory for me to be a content creator. I we should switch. Mike, because, I mean, if I didn't do content creation, I just wouldn't fit in with everyone else. Um, so, but I got into content creation because um, I wanted to be my own boss one day, so I wanted to be self-employed. Um, and I enjoyed being creative, so I was always like writing, messing around, doing stuff, did acting for a few years, and... Um, was a part of all, all anything creative, I was, I was doing it a lot. Um, but then at one point during college, I was like, you know, looking, uh, you look at the political atmosphere, you look at the, um, you know, so social economic atmosphere and everything, there's a lot of, a lot of tension. And we live in an age where people are constantly like, it's all about the 60 second clip of like, ooh, gotcha. Um, and normally in my experience, it seems like there's a lot of tension created between different religions, different people groups, different theologies, because we don't actually take time to try to understand different positions. We, we, we latch onto what we like to hear, we latch onto what arguments we think are easy to debunk, and then we just attack those. Um, so I was like, why don't I try to start something where I actually try to take time to understand different perspectives, try to take time to actually give people you know, you know, information, but also at the same time, make it somewhat lighthearted and not be completely... Um, uh, like there's a lot of channels out there that are very like, you know, it's like a documentary or it's like very serious, but try to do it more lighthearted, a little bit more, um, kind of relate with people a little bit more, I guess, younger age and things like my age or so. Um, so yeah, that's just, I, st I started YouTube and podcasting in, uh, what was it? My senior year of college. Um, and been doing it ever since. Yeah. I, I love your channel because it, uh, it, it, I've noticed in comments, even when like some Muslims will disagree with you, it's like they, many of them are open to just having a conversation with you, you know, and, and it's because of the way that you present, 
your argument against that. You you take the time to actually listen to what they're saying. You go to some of their, uh, you know, you went to the Jehovah's Witness um, services, and, and it's just, uh, that's stuff that people aren't willing to do. It's journalistic. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Definitely. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I got into this, uh, honestly, your pastor was really the, the, the driving force uh, to it. And it's because he came, he came to my service one time and uh, he spoke directly to me. He said, you know, all your life you've had a calling and you've done nothing but reject it. And then you keep asking God, how is he going to use you? But you already know your calling. You have to stop being a coward and just do it. Dang. He told me just straight like that in front of the entire uh, youth service. You know, so for me, I was kind of like like stunned. Him. I was stunned by it, but I appreciated that, you know, because what it did was all it did was, was create this driving force in my head. Like, I have to do something. I have to do something. And um, and then eventually, you know, I, I had this talent already with uh, with my wife because she she does uh, makeup on YouTube and whatnot for Smash Brush, just to plug that in. But, um, you know, I was I was helping her create content and stuff. So I already had this. And, you know, one day we just spoke and I, I said, you know, I have this deep desire to just get on YouTube and, and, and you know, do something for God. Just do something. And my, my channel right now is going through like kind of a shift where it's a podcast, but it's also social, social experiments. And we did something recently where um, it's uh, do all Christians, all Christian singles think alike. And really it's to give the world a perspective on Christians and how we think in different phases of our lives without an agenda being pushed. Because there are videos already similar, but you can see that there's an agenda being pushed in those videos. Yeah, and that's that's why I like your stuff too, because um, it's really grounded. It's for us, by us. Yeah, for us, by us. Um, that was good, that was really good. Clever. You like that? that? That is wild, my wife's a makeup artist. Oh, yeah. So we should chat after. You guys yeah. can collab. Drop, collab. Boom, boom. She's not on YouTube yet. I'm trying to get her there. What, what's your wife's YouTube page? Just for everybody. It's uh, Smash Brush. Smash Brush. Yeah, together. Smash I thought you brush. said Smash Bros. I was just no, like, no, 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 fly. I'm like, yeah. video I mean, games and makeup. Actually, I thought she was doing makeup for Smash Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even no, know they so wore makeup. You. So the funny thing is, is that she's she was, from the get, she was a gamer. So she wanted something similar. Uh, she wanted to do like kind of like a collaboration with makeup and gaming. And she loved Smash Bros, the Nintendo game. So that's where she got the name, Smash Brush. I just played that for the first time at uh, what? at Pastor Josh's no, That's house heresy. You've Arizona. never played. Even I've played Smash well, no, Bros, dude. <laughs> and he hates video games. I think I might have played it in the past, but this is the only time I remember. Right? Uh, and, man, we were getting it in, fighting each other. I was losing to these little kids, you know? But, uh, all right, Angel. Yeah, there's nothing more infuriating than losing in a video game to a little kid. Uh, just putting that yeah, out there. But you would manly, know. Yeah, you wouldn't know. Nothing though. manly about that. My little right? cousins, I would force. Yeah. <laughs> Dang kids. Um, it, if anything, it's a grouchy old man. But, so, what was the question? <laughs> How did you get into content creation, oh, Angel? that's right. Thank um, you, my co-host. My co-host. So, I have been like an artsy guy since I was a kid uh there's just nothing that I was better at than like being creative uh when I when I actually came to Jesus like I I was a worship leader for a little while and so that's kind of how I expressed my creativity as for God and uh went to school for graphic design went to school for art and 
eventually got to a place where I was like, okay, I can go the route of marketing or politics and working in that area, but it's not as fulfilling as talking about God and you know sharing the gospel with people. So I was like, why don't I just take the talents I have from my professional career, merge it with my own, and only really recently has it come out in the way that I'm like very proud of. I used to do like a blog back when blogs were a thing. Um, called Culture and God, and I would just write about the culture and how it relates to God, and that was doing pretty well, but eventually you have to get a real job. So <laughs> now I'm at a place where like, yeah, content seems like a pretty good idea and a, and a pretty reasonable thing to invest in now, which I think is the first time really in history that that's, that's doable. You should redo those blogs in oh, yeah. video form. I used to cover a lot of Hillsong stuff back then. So I'm, I'm going to say it was providential that I ended up making content, but it's very similar to Angel's story. Here's why. When I went to college, I went to a Christian college and I started with an art degree because I was like, I just don't want to do anything else but do art. And I just took the graphic design classes and then midway through, I switched to a Bible degree because they made me start doing uh, live nude painting. And I was like, I'm out about that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> At a Christian I'm, college? Yeah. <laughs> oh my, Christian. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's art. So, but all that to say, I had no idea what my art degree or my almost art degree would come in handy. And then the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And I've been at my church for a while and we said, hey, we need to start doing digital content. We have to get to a live stream. We hadn't yet. We have to start doing this. And I committed before I knew what I was doing. I committed to doing 52 videos once a week, walking our church through the New City Catechism and Man, if you want to see some cringy videos, go check out the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown <laughs> and that new city. Uh, the beginning is so rough, but you can see the progression of me getting better. And then as that went on, we realized that people don't want to engage an institution. People don't want to engage a church YouTube channel. They're there just for consumption and then moving on. And so I started shifting all of that content creation to my own personal channel, still kind of under the guise of... of working for the church and that's where everything started to grow and go from there but it was all pushed by this everything had to become digital at the pandemic so i've only been at this just for a few years there's a marketing saying um people don't follow brands people follow people mm -hmm. right? and i think that's perfect example of that that's a fact uh in in sales it's people don't buy products they buy people yeah you know that's why uh companies spend billions of dollars on what are you laughing at of course, the white guy says that. <laughs> Yo! What? Where is this conversation wow. going? That is from what the, was that? that is all the wokeness in your wow. uh, in, in your I generation. Am Gen Z, remember? Yeah, yeah, that's that's see, what see that why Gen is. Z oh, moving into CRT stands? now. Gosh, man! Um, what the heck was I saying? <laughs> Something oh, nice. this is why companies spend millions of dollars on, mm -hmm. on you know, hey, Kim Kardashian, post this, and we'll give you a million dollars for yeah, one Instagram uh, post. If we weren't you know? canceled before, we're definitely canceled now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm totally <laughs> cool with being canceled. And then you use Kim Kardashian as an analogy, so now I definitely we're really did. I definitely did. John Clash exposed. <laughs> so make sure you hit that like button for all the <laughs> negative comments we're going to get. <laughs> All right, guys, let's dive into the good. Let's go. Let, let's go. Let's yeah. go. Let's go. go. Let, let's go. Let's yeah. go. Let's go. Um, this, this is a good one that uh, it's funny that you like prefaced it, but have you ever switched your denomination or changed your belief about something and why? Anybody can, can grab it. This is, it's not like we have to go in order. All right. So um, starting young, you know, I was always told, hey, you're Pentecostal, you're Pentecostal. 
you know, and I never really knew what that meant other than the fact that, you know, what I saw was more, you know, just people being strict with each other. Uh, then growing up, it, it kind of shifted and that was like, no, now you're evangelist, you know, but we, we do hold Pentecostal traits and, and the way we worship God is, is like Pentecostals, but you don't have to, you know, women can shave. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and then, and then eventually there was like a shift and that's when I was talking about before there was just a shift, right? When I was in high school and, uh, me and my wife started dating, uh, it was like, you know, what is, what does it mean to be an evangelist? What does it mean to be a Pentecostal? What, like, what are these titles and why are we titling ourselves things? Because what I was experienced was if you're not Pentecostal or if you're not evangelist, don't talk to me, you know? And, and then there was a lot of like, it was in a sense segregation within churches and I didn't like that. Uh, then I went over to, uh, I left from my church. I went over to my wife's church in high school. I think I was like 16 or 17. Uh, but she was assemblies of God. And, and even then it was still kind of the same thing. It was very clicky. It was very about who they were and their assembly and their youth groups and no one can just enter and everything was just secluded. Right. Uh, so eventually we left and that's when I started questioning, you know, what am I, what do I, what am I really doing? You know, is this title, does this title define the love that I have for God? You know, and I think we had a conversation before and, and that was why I said I was non-denominational because it's like, I, first of all, I'm all about unity and I don't see why I can't learn off my brother here. I don't see why I can't learn off my brother over here. You know, like we can all teach each other things and it shouldn't be a title that defines that we, oh, you're not Pentecostal. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't listen to you. You know, that's, I think that's insane. So that's why I shifted over to just non-denominational. It's interesting. Uh, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about LT's channel, right? And we, we can see the segregation in, you know, different religions where it's, you know, Muslim, Hindu, this, that, but there is definitely segregation in yeah. church, you know, and, uh, I think that's one of the, the important things about what we're doing here is, is showing that you can agree um, on the essentials and not hate each other and, yeah. and, and be cliquish uh, on things you don't agree on. Well, when I think it comes to, and, and that leads into my story in the sense that the denomination shifts that I've had have usually been around a breaking down of the essentials uh, of getting to what is the gospel and then how you proclaim that gospel and what you say about God's word and the gospel um, is, is extremely essential. And so I didn't grow up Presbyterian. I grew up kind of non-denominational, but it found its roots in the Plymouth brethren. And many of you won't know what that means, but really what that looked like practically was communion every week, women in head coverings, that type of perspective, true to scripture. And my dad being a pastor there, I think he did a great job. But then as I grew and matured in my faith, I ended up in a Presbyterian church working for a Presbyterian church. I'm like, I don't even really know what this is all about. And then while I was working there, we were in the Peace USA. And for some of you may not know what that is, but that's the more liberal branch of Presbyterianism. And while we were there, there was a lot of fighting going on in that denomination about the word of God, about what is central, what is important, what isn't. And when things started happening, like uh, at the General Assembly one year, they had a Muslim imam open the General Assembly with prayer. Like that makes our church go, well, hold up a second. The Trinity is essential. And a prayer to Allah is not a prayer to the Trinitarian God. 
as described in the Bible. And so while some people might look at leaving that denomination as just about uh, over-homosexuality or authority of scripture, no, there there was very deep-seated core things that are problematic. And so we left that denomination, my church as a whole, and moved into the EPC, which is still Presbyterian, but more conservative. And it wasn't just because we disagreed with little minor things. It was, we're getting the gospel wrong. That... That's a, that's a demarcation line, so that's what moved me out. That's really interesting to hear because that whole world I had no idea of. I, I didn't know, I, I don't know any of the names that you mentioned or any. So like a lot of what I've been immersed into has been such an eye-open experience to how diverse you can actually be as a Christian within orthodoxy, mm-hmm. within having the essentials right. And for me as somebody that, like my church, um, it's not Pentecostal. It kind of comes off of the Pentecostal world, but you know, since the beginning, it's kind of been non-denominational, been self-sufficient. So we didn't really belong to an organization or anything. And and I thought that to be an advantage. But what what ends up happening is um, we we are able to go with the waves of kind of culture a little bit, and that can sometimes distract us. And thank God we have a solid pastor that keeps pulling us back to to the word. But just experience see, hearing you talk about all that, I'm just like thinking about all of the missed conversations there could be in the areas of 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 uh, doctrine that should be held open hand, right? And I think that's a really cool thing. By the way, there's a reason that this place is called the House of Worship. I came here one Sunday, and they have incredible. You guys have incredible worship here. Oh, the team is going to love that. <laughs> I did. I did not want to. I did not want to go into the uh, actual sermon. I'm like. I'm like, man. I could be here all day, just yeah. right here. So you can tell we're charismatic by the worship. For yeah, sure. 100%, yeah, 100. percent 100. percent I've taken some wild swings um, theologically and with the different churches. As I mentioned, I think this is probably the third time now. Uh, that I mentioned, I've, I've been all over the place. Uh, so I spent the first 18 years of my life in Pentecostalism. And towards the end there, it was even like hardcore charismatic where people were getting slain left and right. And, you know, just, just wild stuff. And that's the world that I spent most of my life in. In fact, I thought I was a demon slayer for a few years towards the end there. And I actually have Demon Slayer type tattoos on my legs to prove it, which I was thinking about covering up for a long time. But now it's like, whatever, you know, it's part of my story. It's kind of interesting, I guess. But yeah, I used to think that I was slaying folks in the spirit and speaking fire over people and things of that nature. And then I went to a Bible college that's sort of an offshoot of Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a it's really where dispensationalism was popularized in America. And it's very much theology, dispensationalism, um, you know, premillennialism, cessationism. And I really swung hard to the other side to where I said, if you're in the charismatic world, then you need Jesus because you're preaching a false gospel and you know, you're sending people to hell and things like that. So I swung hard to the cessationist camp and the reform camp and things of that nature. And then many years down the line, I found myself at Hillsong mega church in New Jersey. That wasn't necessarily because I agreed with Hillsong's teachings 
and their methods of doing things. It was more so because I really had a heart to teach new believers and disciple new believers. And if you were in New Jersey, Hillsong was kind of the place to be to see people coming to salvation and new Christians and things of that nature. And so I really wanted to pour into all these new believers that were coming on Sunday and things like that. And then from there, I've moved into Reformed Baptist world um, where I typically found that I agree with, with most of what is preached and believed in that world. However, I think a lot of folks in the reform world would cancel me for some of the beliefs that I hold, such as old earth and analogizing some parts of the Bible and things of that nature. And I honestly have found over the many years of swinging back and forth between different denominations that I think it's, I think it's really important to be open to learning other positions because if you stick with what you've known your entire life and you spend your entire life just defending what you've always been without being open to hearing the other side of things, then you're never going to learn what the Bible actually says because you're just going to be too busy defending what you've always believed your entire life. And so when I see um, teachers and theologians and these big names change their position on things like that, I really respect that because I think that that's a sign of humility and a sign of somebody who is open to learning what the scriptures actually say and not just spending their entire life defending the position that they've always held. Yeah, that's me. Uh, I'm sorry. No, no, that, no. that Just that last part that you were saying, that, that was me with uh, the whole decreeing and declaring thing. You know, it, I had to be open enough to say, hold up, you know, I'm wrong. I need to change that. Let me look into the Bible as, for myself and, and see where it is that I'm wrong and actually make a, a change in my patterns. Because I did grow up in a charismatic church. I mean, that's what they do. They, they believe that you can declare things. But I'm, I'm sure none of them are doing it with malintent. But, you know, it's, it's something that they're accustomed to doing. Yeah, I, I want to say this because I think it's important um, for people who are currently in the Baptist world. So I grew up a Reformed Baptist. And this is not something that my pastor taught me. But this is a byproduct of going deep into the scriptures. Your pride grows. And you, say that again, I couldn't hear you. Your, your pride grows, your pride. and you start thinking that your way is the only way. Especially, I see this in the Reformed culture a lot. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in other cultures. It does. But because I'm Reformed, I'm in the Reformed culture, and I'm seeing it all throughout my social media pages, that a lot of people in the reform camp, if you're listening, close the door to hear any other opinion on, on secondary things. I'm not talking about Trinitarian stuff. I'm not talking about the forgiveness of sins and gospel and, and stuff that's cemented in the ground. You can't change that. And we would all say amen to all of that here. I'm talking about secondary things. They'd say you're a false teacher, you're a heretic. And we become heresy hunters because we think our hermeneutic is the only way. And when you actually sit there and hear someone who knows a lot, who studied the Bible, you realize that you get humbled and it's important to learn other people's view as long as it doesn't change primary doctrine. You grow more and you start deep diving into the word even more because you want to find the truth and you want to see what the scriptures actually say and you're not dogmatic for no reason. So my challenge for people who are listening in the reform community, are you dogmatic for no reason because you were raised that way 
and because you feel really cocky about doing a deep dive into the scripture, or are you dogmatic because you know without a shadow of a doubt that that's what the Bible says? And most of them, if you ask, where'd you get that from? What verse? Uh, that's the point. Know your word. And that's where, where I'm at now is, you know, the word charismatic is like, oh, what does that mean? You know what I mean? You guys are putting yourself in a camp that's, to be honest, if you say that word, it's like using one of the words we were talking about earlier, like manifestation yeah. or declaring or whatever. You start using those words and people start scratching their heads. Yeah. But I'm at the moment now where words don't scare me. And I want to get at what's the heart? What's your heart? What's your intent? And if, sorry, I'm blocking your face with my hand. I'm Puerto Rican. I talk with my hands. It's okay. He's don't forget. He's from, he's from New York. Yeah. Don't, don't forget. Don't, don't, don't forget. Don't. No, no. So my, my overall goal, and I'll shut up now. My overall thing with any pastor, with any church, is if I show up on Sunday, if you're going verse by verse, line by line, pure exposition, I want to hear what you have to say. But if you're not opening up the Bible the whole time, I'm questioning your salvation. Yeah, I, I, I love that you brought up the, this idea that words can be scary to people, because a title specifically. Because when I do say that I am charismatic, what I don't mean is that I manifest things and that I believe new ages, belong, that it's like a lost part of Christianity and all that. Like, that's not what I mean. And I think the definition of the words are really important when you are in, in leadership as a church or when you are doing public content about Christianity, explain what you mean by those things and explain it clearly so that others aren't confused about it or deceived by it unintentionally. Um, I, th I think that stuff is so important. And like I, I always, and this is a political talking point that I always have, but definitions actually matter. And and the way that we define things is is, it, a lot of times objective and when it comes to doctrine and when it comes to theology. So we have to be careful about how we do that. So I love that you brought that up, especially as a charismatic. I appreciate that from somebody who is reformed. It's awesome. You, but you know what gets me, and I'm sorry, but this is a topic that I really <laughs> like. I'm sorry, but here's my, here's my hand. <laughs> We're just treating this Gen Z terrible. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only Beyonce had no. the best album yeah, of yeah, all yeah. time. I'm going to let you finish. I'll shut it down right after this. Right after this point. Let me finish. No, 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 I'm kidding. Um, but this is what gets me annoyed, is the fact that people label charismatics, oh, that guy must be a charismatic, because they like clapping while they sing a song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Because they're so happy about I, I what God's doing. I'm a Baptist, man. Yeah. I'm as Baptist as it gets. But I'm jumping up and down during those songs. You're not I Baptist. Love. You're a Bapticostal. I'm a Bapticostal. Oh, yeah. oh, but those, oh, sound like a dinosaur. I know, but even that, and, and I think you're right. The labels are like weird to me. Like, like uh, at our church, you know, People struggle clapping. Why? Yeah. And yeah, I asked yeah. them, and they're like, oh, it's just how I was raised. Well, be raised different because God deserves to be You have been raised with Christ. God deserves for you to be charismatic while you worship. And if I say that, people are like, whoa, what does that mean? I mean, submit your bodies to worship. So I think it's important, and I think you should clarify. What does it mean now? Not compared to the crazies, like the Bethel crazies that reign fake golden dust from the sky, right? We actually have it's that. Important it's going to be coming later. To make a clarification real quick, because people don't really know. They, they'll label you charismatic if you clap while you sing. Right. What does it mean right now to be a sound, so to speak, charismatic? Yeah. So I think subjecting all of the, the, the spiritual gifts 
to scripture for analysis is the main one. So that's right? just a continuationist. Yes, so continuationist. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, very excited about worship. Very excited about the physical way that God is reacting to you as an ind as an independent person because of your relationship with him. So some people are very extroverted, so they're going to be extroverted in worship. It doesn't mean that they are falling out in the Holy Spirit. They're just having a really emotional moment. And I think emotions have been shunned for a long time as far as like the reform side of things a little bit when emotions are healthy and God has given us emotions for a reason and we should be able to um, we should be able to uh, show our emotions to God through worship so I think that's the the charismatic side but also doctrinally um, I don't think that there's much different I think Maybe we go a little heavier on prophecy. Um, I don't think that like there are apostles that are modern day apostles in the same way that Peter and and you know and John were. But I do think that the ability to prophesy is still real. It still can happen, mm -hmm. but it has to be subject to scripture and it has to be validated right. by scripture. And if it's not, then there has to be severe consequences for that. Like the person should probably not be ministering anymore. After well, that. So I'm just out of curiosity. Am I the only one here who doesn't identify as reformed or charismatic? Uh, I'm with you, brother. Huh? I, I'm I'm not reformed, or I, I guess I could be a little charismatic. Uh, you know, I go to a Pentecostal church in in uh, in Connecticut. It's incredible church, worship amazing. But um, I. Like I, I would say I'm a dry charismatic, if that makes yeah. sense. You know, I'm so like, you'll lift your hands up occasionally. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, like yeah, I'm, I'm similar to that. I'm sense. a dry charismatic. You know, yeah. I, I, I do not. Uh, like I'm not sitting in the back corner. Like oh, please help me speak in tongues. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm yeah. just. Uh, I just want to know God more. That's mm -hmm. that's really my answer to Is, that. But. In that case, in the way that you guys defined it, we're all we all should be charismatic in that way. Mm -hmm. So that's that's where I'm thinking like these terminologies are confusing to the outside world, especially to the unbeliever. It seems like we're all divided, but in reality, we're not. I think yeah. the word charismatic was used as kind of a catch all for anything more reformed than the reformers or the reformed theology people. Right. And and it, it kind of became a word. I think I don't know the history accurately, but I would assume during the strange fire era, there was just like charismatic everybody other. Right. And then. But within that is Pentecostalism and non-denominational and evangelical and all these things. And, and I think, you know, those all have minor differences with their liturgies and the way that they conduct services or what emphasis is placed in, in which area of the service. But besides that, I think, yeah, the fundamentals are intact in a solid church. Um, I think people get a bad rep for the name yeah, sometimes. Yeah. I think what we have to remember is that, you know, whatever you call yourself, the relationship that you have with God and the way you show that is all personal. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's like, it's like I grew up in a, in, a, in a church where it's like, if you're not lifting your hands up and crying and shouting and doing all you don't love God, but no, that's not, that's really not how it is. Just love God the way you love God, you know, and God knows your heart. I mean, it's written, God knows your heart. So yeah, you know, I can say I, I love him in a charismatic way uh, by definition, but you know, it's just a personal thing. And, and speaking as one of the frozen chosen um, Presbyterians over here, uh, and, and that's the moniker we're given in worship because, yeah, clapping is 
not often, but there's also something that is so absolutely glorious about hearing an organ play and a wall of sound of voices singing. Yeah. And they may not be dancing. I love that. They, they, they may not be praising. The, the best, the best uh, what am I looking for, praise we got over the last few weeks from one of our uh, shut-ins who's home watching on our live stream says, I love that we didn't play the organ. And I'm like, what? And she said, because when you played the piano, I could hear the voices. And, and so, so when you have that worship, right, like that is worship of God, whether or not it's outwardly charismatic or inwardly charismatic, I think is what we're talking about. It's the heart of worship. What do you have? And so as we're talking about these things, the problem is every church has to, to some degree, fall into a category to be able to identify. But it's not always helpful for us to self-identify as anything other than being brothers in Christ who desire to follow the word of God. And but this is what happens. All of us are in content creation. And what ends up happening is we have to put something out and that gets reacted to. And then we try to engage in comment sections. And most oftentimes, none of this clarity comes through. It's important to always define your terms whenever you're in conversation with someone or you're discussing stuff. And I mean, even like in my channel, with comparative religion, I'm always having to define terms. Um, you say the word Trinity and Every other religion out there is like, what the world does that mean? Either they, they think you're a polytheist or they think that you're like some sort of weird. Anyway, either way, like you say, you say a word and people have different understandings and connotations and definitions for those words. So it's always important whenever you do either content creation, you talk to someone, you're always defining your terms. And a lot of times in my experience, whenever I see disagreements, fights or anything in the church between other people, whatever it may be, it boils down to the fact that they're not speaking the same language. They are, but they're not. Right. That's a fact. And um, I was bringing it back to sales. I think sales is so, so good for communication. It's uh, whenever you're selling something to somebody and you're explaining to them why you think they need it. One, you have to listen to why they need it, not why you think they need it. But you also have to speak in their same language. You know, if somebody... Uh, if somebody is, is somebody who likes to have a lot of fun and, and travel and all of this stuff, I'm not going to break down the chemical analysis of this product that I'm sending you. I'm going to tell you, hey, it, it'll make you have, it, it'll feel good on your skin. You know, like they don't, they don't need all that. So speaking the same language, I know that's a horrible analogy, but speaking the same language as somebody is so important and defining those terms is so important. Now, as much as I'd love to stay on this, we got to move to the next, uh, next subject, all right? What do other Christians disagree with you about the most? Kanye West. Uh, what? Calvinism. <laughs> you got to explain further. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is before um, Alex Jones era, but... <laughs> Yeah, I used to. I was Wait, giving him so the you're dispensational of the doubt. Kanye West. There's errors. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's what I've gotten a lot. Actually, no. I, in that same vein, I think what what a lot of people have disagreed with me on the most has been um, the the entertainment or the art side of Christianity. Like, what is the role of art within the context? How do you create, quote unquote, biblical art? And I think like, I have a very long leash for that because I'm a creative and I'm, I guess my bias is kind of there, but I get a lot of like, for example, The Chosen, and I, I'm sure somebody here disagrees with me, but I think it's effective, I think it's needed, and I think it's well made. And I think that we have to allow for good and beautiful art to be made with the image of Jesus as the center of the storyline um, in order for us to touch the hearts of people that may have their hearts hardened to the gospel. Yeah. So that's just one yeah, of the not, things. Not to steal your answer, but it's for me, it would be the same thing. It's like, 
it's like, oh, you're you're creating entertainment, uh, entertaining content for Christianity. How does that work? You know, Christianity shouldn't be something to entertain. You know, it's something that you should take in. It's a relationship with God, and it's something serious. It shouldn't be something to joke about. So that would that would be the same thing. I, I don't think the issue with the chosen was the fact that it's entertaining, though. I think the issue of the chosen is the fact that the guy's not even a Christian. He's a Mormon. Catholic. He's a Mormon. No, oh no, you're talking about the no. But guy what I mean, by my response, the guy, no, the guy who runs a chosen is a Mormon. Mormon. Uh, Dallas Jenkins. Well, no, he's not actually the guy. Okay, are you talking about if you're talking about um, the guy, the ch- who's the person who wrote that long book series? Um, the one who produces the chosen is a Mormon. No, he's not a Mormon. The, the, the guy, guy at the it. the guy at the front, Dallas, is not a Mormon. Dallas Jenkins his, is not a Mormon. His, I think his like number one partner. Yeah. Is, is who's the Mormon? Dallas the, Jenkins is the director slash producer, and he's evangelical, but his like financial or something like that is Mormon. I forget who, but yeah. So Jenkins is Mormon. Isn't there Mormon? is Mormonship in the leadership because I think Angel we Studios is probably Google that real quick to make sure. <laughs> no, he's definitely not because yeah, I did a, I did a deep dive into this. I mean, I don't I don't watch The Chosen, but. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle on it, but this is not me talking. I'm the yeah, host. No, I'm but my, my response wasn't about The Chosen. It was more about me creating content and trying yeah. to be entertaining now, with it. Hold on, yeah, let me, and, and The Chosen is just an example. Yeah. Right? Let, me just, let me just throw this out there. So what if somebody who is a non-believer created a movie or a series or something that was completely to the T scriptural? Would we not be allowed to watch it? I think the word is true no matter what. I mean, that kind of falls into a similar camp. Like, are you not allowed to read a Ravi Zacharias book now because of the scandal? Um, to me, it doesn't make much of a difference whether or not. I wouldn't ever use an example of something that I don't think has a good stigma to it because there's stigma and connotation to everything. But as far as if something's true or not, uh, it has no bearing. Yeah, this goes back to the art versus the artist argument, right? Like, can you separate the two? And in my opinion, I think it. I think you can. I think it... It takes, it's an individual thing. I think it, people individually feel differently. But in my opinion, I think we should separate the artist, art from the artist because all of us are fallen, all of us are sinners, and nobody will ever live a perfect life in yeah. order to make a perfect piece of art. And so I think we should take the art for what it is at face value. And, and I think it depends upon the art. Like I would say there's a difference between uh, someone making music for the church to sing and they're not a believer. 100%. And versus something that might be considered entertainment that isn't for the church to use to worship God and sing corporately. I think there's a there's a difference but in my mind, at least that's where I start to draw a, a line in the sand of if it's created for the church and the people of God, then perhaps if we're getting into the movie video realm, I think there's a lot more liberty in that space. But for me in The Chosen, it's the same for me and Christian music that may be coming from places that have bad theology. Sit, sit, we, we have that question coming later. We have I'll that. save it. Okay. okay. So, yeah, I'll I'll save it. Your question is a hypothetical that in all reality doesn't really exist. Yeah. But it, what I can use as a real-time example is John Cooper, who's a friend of Bible Lingers. Not like friend, like we're, we'll go out together, but like, you know, we've done a couple interviews together. And I don't know anyone more artistic than... Uh, John Cooper. And people people will stretch his album covers and say, they're demonic. No, that's a perfect example of a person who cares about being theologically sound, but also offers edgy art. 
you know, and I totally appreciate his art. I totally appreciate his songs. I totally appreciate his heart. If you listen to his podcast, there's no one more sound than him. If you listen to his music, some of the stuff is not necessarily like quote unquote from the Bible. Definitely he uses his art to drive his music, but at the same time, he's very theologically sound. I see nothing wrong with that. On the other other side of it is Kanye West. And it's not just art being art. It's words he said that's very unclear, and that's why people question him. Yeah, well, Kanye went a little off the rail, a lot off the rails. I was about to say um, a little, little. We have to define, we have to define these words here. What Where do you mean by little? Yeah. What do you mean by little? But I, I think I I look at somebody like, for example, uh, I don't know how many of you guys may know John Bellion. No, but he's he a art, uh, singer. It's a, the singer. Yeah, he's. I don't know how Christian or not Christian he is. I know he has been. Um, but his art emotes the internal conflict of being a Christian trying to contend with the problems of the world. And I think just that emotion being honestly contributed to in music that is not sang from an altar on, on like on a Sunday, I think is a beautiful thing and I think Christians need it. We need to be able to see somebody that accurately depicts the struggles we go through. Another artist like that is um, uh, King, uh, was it a... Uh, King Kaleidoscope, is that it? Or is it backwards? King Kaleidoscope. Um, They do an amazing job of just showing that depressive side of like, God, am I even good enough? Or where where are you right now? Very Psalms-like, very, you know, David-like. But then also providing some sort of glimmer of hope for getting through that. And their music is truly unique. It's unlike any other band. And it's it's good. So to be fair, none of us, I think, have any problem with using art in an edgy way. I think the heart's intent is what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. So, and, since, you know. um, so since we're here on the subject of music, uh, what are some Christian bands or, or Christian musicians that you love to listen to? Um, and then also, what are some Christian, bunny ears, <laughs> bands that you think people should really stay away from? I, I could take this because I'm a music minister at my church. Go for it. There you go. So I will, I will not sing a Bethel song. I used to be different because I'm like, music is music. Uh, uh, at the time, I was so into music. I would hear Bethel, Elevation, Hillsong. You know, I would hear hymns. And not once did I ever look up a church. I'd just go on Spotify and enjoy music. And I'm, yeah. oh, this song's yeah. awesome. And not once have I ever looked up the church. So that whole argument where someone could walk in and really love a song and then and ultimately then look up the church and be led astray wasn't valid to me personally. But then when Bethel had uh, Kenneth Copeland on a couple weeks ago, like not saying that I didn't make that decision earlier, but that was the, the line in the sand for me because Kenneth Copeland is leading people to hell. So if someone did accidentally fall into the church teachings and found Kenneth Copeland, it's not helping them, um, but I, I enjoy Austin Stone. I like uh, City of Light. I like um, Shane and Shane, Worship Initiative. These are all bands that I think pretty much you can listen to anything you want, and they're going to be safe. Uh, but old school Hillsong, I mean, cancel me. I still love some of those songs. I agree. That, that <laughs> Hillsong... I, I wouldn't have went to church. That, that's how I got invited. Somebody's yeah. like, yo, you got to come. It's like a rock concert. Came to my rescue, man. 
Some of those songs are classics. <laughs> and most of those, dude. most of those songwriters don't even go to Hillsong anymore, and they automatically uh, like align them with the 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 way Hillsong went. But if you if you compare Hillsong now to Hillsong thirty years ago when most of those songs came out, they're two different Hillsongs. Yeah. Well, so you here know. here's a question in the same light: Does it matter if a hymn writer or someone of antiquity had bad theology and we sing their music versus someone today who has bad theology and we sing their music? That's a great question. A I, great I only idea. think there's a difference because of how long ago those hymns came out. Nobody could find anything on those authors. Whereas today, the technology is such crazy, you know, so crazy available that people can find anything they want with any church. He'll find it. He'll find it. To a degree, I think you're right. But the main difference is what they've said is done. They're not speaking anymore. Let's ask the question. <laughs> I, I, no, I, was, I was saying that I agree with what you're saying about how, um, you know, back then, like you can't just type in a, a hymn and then you see the, the person who wrote it and then you go into like a dive. You have to do a lot of work True. to find out. You would who, have to hit up a library. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. You have to actually open a book. Yeah. Right. Um, but since since this is current. Right. You hear even if we hear a Hillsong song, you know, I love a lot of the old Hillsong songs yeah. from when yeah. I was going there. Um, they're incredible uh, works of music. But if I share that with somebody, all you have to do now is type in Hillsong and boom, you're brought right to it. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's where I'm at on I'm it. I'm a strong advocate I'm for the churches anyway. writing their own music too. Mm, yeah. Preach. I think yeah. that's an I awesome I wish that would thing. happen more. Yeah. And, and I've been to, there's a couple churches in the area that do that. And I think it's so good because it really comes from a place of where that church is and it gives them the ability to praise God in a totally unique way. You know? Yeah. Sure. So I'm, um, I'm in my sect and denomination, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the, the authority of Lord's Day worship is all under the teaching elder, the senior leader pastor. And so any music that's sung, that's done, isn't just done, picked by a worship leader, but is under that authority. And the main reason is to be good Bereans about, it's not just if there's connection to someone we might disagree with, but what is the song actually teaching? I believe worship has two, two parts in it. And when we're getting into worship, that's what I think. I think it glorifies God and it teaches. It's didactic. And so with the worship we sing, the words, the little words we're singing as a corporate body matter. And so that should be important. And even if there's a particularly, if we think that, and I hope we'd all agree on this, that everyone at our church on a Sunday morning, not everyone there is saved. Like the gospel needs to be clear. And if there's music that isn't clear on the gospel, that isn't worth singing in a corporate context. Now, personal believer to personal believer, you have your own maturity. That's different. I think there's a big difference for me in music. Like I've said, what's corporate and what's personal. I can listen to a Hillsong song, even if with all that in the background yeah. and be able to discern and know, okay, that's goofy. But what about someone who can't? I think we have to be super yeah. careful about the words we sing. That's such a great distinction. Like as I used to lead worship, like I said, and that was something that I've, I didn't think about back then. I was like, I want the coolest sounding song, period. And I want people to be moved 
period. And as I've, I've grown, I've realized like, yeah, there is attachment that these songs have to people's hearts. And then when they leave, they go and they follow these movements that are still going and they get swept up in that. And so I, I think for me, it's been, it's been more so about, yeah, what are the words of the actual song? Are they conveying the message of the gospel accurately? And, and further than that, are, are the people who are writing these songs going to be good stewards of the gospel for people to learn from? And it's, it's hard to say because like I genuinely think Bethel is excellent at writing music, production, you know, marketing. They're excellent at it. And that's to me, that's like so unfortunate because it is the most attractive thing to uh, uh, somebody who may not be a believer yet or who is still coming you know, into the fray of that. It, it's it's the most appealing thing out there. And so I think in order to combat that, we have to be able to distinguish worship music that is going to be on the altar and then music that is you know, for us to listen to in our own time. Or another example, just a question, someone like a Dustin Kentrew, who started super, he, he was reformed. He came out of the Mark Driscoll Young Restless Reform Camp and wrote some very rich, theologically dense music. He's now no longer a believer, self-professed. Gonger. Yeah, what do we do? What do we do with that? Where when you go to his early music, you would still encounter clear biblical teaching but now no longer. Like, so I think that there is not a hard and fast line, I guess is what I'm trying to present and why these are conversations you should have and not just say, oh, I'll never listen to and draw a line in the sand. I think my, it has well, to be. My, my uh, I'm sorry, this maybe is, one hard line we can draw is discipleship, right? If we're under proper discipleship and if we're being led by proper people, we'll, we'll be able to separate out like, okay, maybe this is a good Hillsong right. song, but the movement itself X, Y, and Z, right? And be able to explain that to people. So I think discipleship plays a big role in that as well. I think whatever side you're on, I think the important thing is to be consistent. Mm. So if you're going to say, if you're going to literally, literally say, I'm done with this one band, then I would hope that you would apply those same standards to all the music choices that you apply. I drew a hard line at Bethel because of something they recently did. But before that, I was consistent. It all depend on the theological richness of the song. I'm kind of switching now because I've see, I'm seeing the damage that these churches are doing. And the other bands are so amazing that there's really no need to sing those songs anymore. Whereas back in the day, those three bands were the only ones doing amazing music. Now we have such incredible music on that side. So my challenge for anyone is if you're going to make that distinction and you're going to cancel, cancel them all and be consistent yeah. or be on the other side and be consistent. Don't, don't present your argument and be weak and... and yeah. Be shaky and not have a good floor to stand on. You know? And this is where I want to call out one that you mentioned, Austin Stone Worship, I think is solid, particularly because they put how they wrote the song and the scriptural references that they're making in their music up on their website for everybody to see. Like, I, as a pastor, I love that. Why? Because when I make our liturgy, I can include that as a hyperlink for people to learn more. And so stuff like that. So if you're a worship leader out here and you're writing music, show your work. Like, we would love to see that as, as people who are trying to teach people, show where you get these illustrations so we don't have to think, is that a reference to this or that? Or, or? Yeah. That's such pastoral advice. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> all right, all right, moving on. This, is, this one's going to be a bomb that uh, uh -oh. a lot of people are going to be mad Which one? Uh-oh. I, uh, I got a few bombs uh, coming, but... Do you think Catholics are oh, real Christians? I knew that one was coming. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> oh, gosh. Let me get canceled first. Um, <laughs> the Catholic Church, no. 
Yeah. An individual Catholic can be, yes. I think there's a big discrepancy happening within the Catholic Church because they don't provide um, any real form of organized Bible studies or um, any real form of uh, intentional discipleship that somebody can stumble onto the gospel as a Catholic and really genuinely believe that. I mean, there's not going to be like a priest that moves them to another side. They're just going to believe that and go to mass and then leave and keep experiencing the gospel. And so uh, I, I do think a Catholic can be a, a, a saved Christian, absolutely. But I don't think the Catholic Church is a vehicle for that. I think also yeah. this goes back to our earlier conversation about definitions. What do you mean when you say, because whenever I talk to someone and they call themselves Catholic, my question always is, what do you mean by that? Like Universal. So like, yeah, I mean, by definition. I mean, we're, we're the one true church. So yeah. um, <laughs> I just want that to be clear to everyone. Don't ever question that. Um, so anyway, but yeah, so it comes down to definitions for me I will always ask because I've run to people who are like when you call yourself Catholic what does that mean um, and to some people that just means well I believe in the literal consumption of the flesh and blood of Christ during Eucharist I go to mass and I, I believe that the Virgin Mary was always a virgin uh, but they don't actually espouse to all the Roman Catholic teachings they don't espouse to all the um, liturgies that have been pronounced or the even the Pope head and Things like that. They don't. They don't pronounce that. They just believe in these more orthodox slash traditional um, beliefs and theologies. And in my mind, to me, I'm like, okay. But then they believe in the core gospel. They don't believe salvation uh, is your works are necessary for salvation. Things they believe in the core gospel. To me, then I'm like, okay, you're you're a Christian. You're 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 you're. you're, you're uh, yeah, oh, oh, oh. yeah. They like so, like in Catholic thought, where like you, you get saved through Christ, but then there's these works to help basically maintain your salvation, like that type of. Anyway, they don't. I know people who don't believe that, but they would still call themselves Catholic because they go to some sort of like nominally Catholic church. Um, and so for me, it goes down back to that question: What do you mean by Catholic? And if you're saying like you need to, you know, your works help save you. Um, the Pope has the right to say whatever he wants and that goes into authority and like yeah. it, it, and they go down that route I'm like okay now you're starting to cross into non-Christian territory but yeah yeah so I would even say you can get the Pope wrong and still be a Christian um, but I think it's the works-based salvation if we're talking about what is core and central and we're talking about that we're saved uh, by grace through faith in Christ alone for salvation it's getting to that essential understanding um, you can have other things that are disagreed upon, but the problem I think that we're trying to say is the Catholic Church in its core doctrinal statements does not allow for saved by grace alone, yep. through faith alone, yep. in Christ alone. It's Jesus plus sacraments. Jesus plus works. So it's baptism saves you. It's the Eucharist saves you. It's these other things. And so it's not that um, we can even maybe get sola scriptura wrong. We can disagree on that. And I think you could still be a, a saved Christian. But when we look at Vatican II and the core documents in in Catholicism, they don't align with a teaching of the gospel in scripture. So now the question becomes, how do we get to that place with the people we're looking at? And oftentimes that's a much messier conversation than I made a video on this or on that or conversation. So I think Dylan, what you said is right on and, and I would hundred percent agree. And that's what we're saying when we're saying it's the essential core, that would be my perspective. Um, and so I'm very hesitant. We have two on our church staff. We have two people who have been practicing Catholics who are now on staff with us in church. Right. So, but they hold to the core gospel. It's it just, 
what, what, yeah. So most Catholics don't even know what Vatican II is, let alone adhere to yes, exactly. uh, what would anathema is, this anathema, that anathema. You know, I think that uh, the idea of these extra works that need to be done in order to earn your salvation, I think, and I, you know, I don't want to be incendiary and emotional about it, but I do think that it's insulting to the cross because essentially if you have to go to purgatory to work off, you know, all, all your extra sins and earn your way into heaven, then you're essentially saying that the cross was not enough in and of itself. Yeah, exactly. You're pointing at, at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and saying, well, that can kind of save me, but I got to, I got to finish the job. I got to keep know? this up. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's like God, God said what he said, but eh, you know what? Uh, no, I'm going to add this. And you know, that's just, no, <laughs> I, I wish I had something more to add, but really guys, you guys are covering this extremely well. <laughs> well and, and I think that the challenge that ends up happening is in that system, it leads to a fear-based understanding of God, not a grace-based because you, you have to maintain these works of the law. So you have a misunderstanding of law and gospel and you end up not even ever going to the word of God because you feel so burdened by the law that you're supposed to keep and all of these things you're supposed to do. So what ends up happening, you're right, there aren't Bible studies. The word of God isn't used as often. We're talking in broad categories. You might be a Catholic listening going, that's not me. And I'd say, praise the Lord. Um, and so that's, that's how I would come at it. I think we're mostly in agreement there. The yeah, challenge yeah. becomes have conversations, talk, so, ask so questions. A quick, a quick question then. Um, what place does history and tradition have within the church? Because, so I don't actually like, I personally don't know anyone who's like a really traditional Roman Catholic that I interact with a lot, but I do have a good friend who's Eastern Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And to him, um, the, the big problem with um, Protestantism, the big problem with evangelicals is they're not concerned with church history. Yeah. And he, and he's like, to me, it seems like you guys ignore tons of the early church fathers writings. You ignore tons of early church history. And it seems like you guys are just uneducated in these fields. And then you dismiss everything that we claim on the basis of, well, um, what the reformers did. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm just curious what you guys think. What, how, what's the importance of history and church tradition within uh, the Christian Christendom? I think that's a totally fair uh, assessment and a totally fair critique. Um, I think it's changing, though. I think the, especially with like the opening up of uh, a lot more of Christian content going on online and like coming to the realization that the Eastern Orthodox Church is as historic as it is, I think we're kind of gearing back towards a place where like we want to see what the church father said. We want to implement that in, into our lives, into our liturgy, into our service and our, our, our desires for God. So um, I think it's a fair critique and I think it does have to change. You guys, uh, the Bible dingers, you guys go through a lot of the church history and stuff like that. You can speak on that. Yeah, I was going to say, if you study church history, though, you realize there's not many people who agree on everything. So, you know, if you talk to an Eastern Orthodox, which one's more important? Who's Irenaeus the one true church? <laughs> or Irenaeus or, or this guy or that guy, but they will ignore origin. Or they'll ignore, ultimately, they're doing the same thing that we're doing except they're holding individuals at a higher authority instead of holding scripture at a higher authority. So we look at church history too, but we say which ones line up with what we read in scripture instead of making an individual person from church history our God, we make the word of God the final authority over what the church historians have said, and then we compare them. Protestants do that all the time. Church history plays a, a vital role 
and what we believe. Except we believe in the ones that actually believe in the things that are described in Scripture. Yeah, just to sort of reiterate that, I would also say, to answer the question directly, I would say the church history is important, but it's less important than the Bible. The Bible is clearly more important, and you should be basing your doctrine based on the Scriptures. Yeah, the biggest difference is Sola Scriptura. That's the biggest difference. That was, that was a really good question. Um, Maybe he should. Yeah, yeah. You, well, it's because it's because the mic. If he had the actual mic, he'd be a better host than me. One hundred percent better. Um, all right, guys. Let's move on to the next the next question. You guys handled that one well. Clip that one. Yeah, yeah. You guys handled it well. No, I don't think you're going to be canceled by any Catholics. Um, <laughs> oh no. But so no, no, no. So no. here's the thing, though. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. What what LT said. He said, you know, define what you mean by catholic yeah you know it, it at its core it literally just means universal um but then you have roman catholic you have like all of these different uh uh things that pop into your mind when you hear the word catholic what's actually interesting for like my channel um a lot of people in my comment section who are uh so like large portion of my audience is muslim like that's a big portion of my audience um and then a few buddhists a few people from all sorts of places um they typically associate Christianity and based on the comments I get with Catholicism um, and actually one of the interesting thing that's always interesting to me is that um, the, the, the these denominations that we create and these definitions that we create mean something to people even outside the church and I don't think we always are aware of that people have interpretation of these definitions outside of the church so like when they when um, a Muslim hears Catholic what they're hearing is Christian and so when they what the, and what they whatever they whatever their Catholic people within their region says that's what they put on Christianity or um, people um, some of the some people who are like you know in my comments are from like Africa um, Africa is, actually has a quite interesting like uh, church history there um, and there's there's quite a lot of prosperity gospel in Africa there's a lot of like um, extremely charismatic stuff there and there'll be associate Christianity with those things and so I think it's also interesting always to keep in mind these these words and these definitions um, that people outside the church also place value onto them and have their own interpretations. And then we have to really swim through that as well. So again, I, I guess just emphasizing the point of clarity, not just for the people within the church, but people outside the church as well. Amen. So I think this, this next question kind of piggybacks off of, uh, you know, the whole, are Catholics, yeah. Christians? It's soteriology. For those of you who don't know, that's how you say, how you're saved. Um, because it, it varies between Protestants and Catholics. And, uh, you know, on, on the back end of that, when you deep when you dive deeper, you know, you have Calvinism, Arminianism, you know, these these there's like layers to it. But just for for if somebody's on, you know, laying down on the ground, they got just got hit by a car. How is that person saved? If you had a chance to get to share the gospel with them, how is that person saved? Do you got to, you know, give it to them, splash them with some water, make sure they're baptized, you know, uh, say, hey, can you speak in tongues? Can you speak in tongues? Speak in tongues real quick, you know? Right, how, right. how is yes. it? Yes, yeah. all of those things. Yes. <laughs> all those yes. things. Yeah. All yes, everything. Yes. Yeah. 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 Find a puddle something. And you can't, Find sprinkle has got to be fully dunked, you oh, know? Yeah. Got to be fully dunked. So It's a predicament. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of layer that, that question. First, you know, what is the gospel for people who don't know? Um, that, that may hear, yeah, I know you got to put your faith in Christ, but what, it, what, what does that even mean for people on the outside of the church that are listening in? I think the pastor should take this one. <laughs> I mean, I'll start us off with what the gospel is. Romans. Um, no. <laughs> so 
I, I think quite simply, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That's the gospel, uh, that we were dead in our sin and trespasses, but God, rich in mercy, with the great love that he loved us, he made us alive with Christ Jesus. And by grace, you've been saved through faith, none of yourselves, so thus no one should boast. You've been created by God for the good works to walk in. That's my paraphrase, the JDC paraphrase. But um, that's that's the basic core of the gospel. You can find that in other places. Uh, when I often talk about the gospel, I have to put in the difference between God's sovereignty and man's personal sovereignty in the sense that God has a desire and a will for the world that man rebels and rejects against, and, and that all of human beings are in a state of rebellion against God. So, so that man bleeding out um, on the, after getting hit by a car that John was probably driving, um, <laughs> what, is that all he has to, all he has to believe in, in your eyes? Or, so the reason why I ask this is there's actually a specific reason, but I'm just curious what. Sure. What, what belief. So I, I would say that, no, it's, it's not just simply agree with what I said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because even the, the demons believe. Uh, I believe that when we're talking about salvation, we're talking about a unique work and movement of the power of God to regenerate a dead person. And the result of that regeneration is saving faith. And so for someone who would confess and believe, I believe that becomes the marker of a regenerate soul. What can a dead person do to make themselves alive? So whether or not, uh, at that moment, the person laying on the ground is that illustration. Uh, yes, in agreement with what has been said, that that may be saving faith as gifted by God. There we see in Ephesians two. Because the reason why, two reasons why I have two reasons why I asked that. One is because I often avoid the word belief. I tend to use the word repent. Repent because I like re it. Repent normally means turn away from. Like you turn away from your former life to a new life. It's more than just uh, intellectually assenting to something. It's more like I intellectually believe this, but I also am actually personally applying it. Like I'm actually personally um, walking through this, and this is my whole being is turning away from my former life, turning to Christ. Um, so that's partially why I just tend to use a, avoid the word believe because a lot of people say, well, I believe that, but they don't actually assent to it in sure. the full, full sense. Um, the second reason why I ask that is because um, – so I have I have had conversations with people before where they ask, "Is it actually necessary to believe Jesus is God um, to be saved?" Because the, um, they they said like if someone just says, "Oh, I believe in Jesus, my Lord and Savior, and I believe there is only one God," and then they end up dying, um, is that what how does that play out? Can Jesus be Lord without being God? Can he be the Lord? Can he be Savior without being God? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I, I think that inherent in that is a, is a definition of what is the Lordship of Christ. And, and so I think Orthodox Christianity would say there isn't a separation. You can't say Jesus is Savior and not God because then you're saying... Yeah. That means we can be saved by something other than God. Mm -hmm. And as humans, only God is able to save us from the from sin from the problem of sin i think it's a good distinction because there are people in that in that camp um but yeah i i would personally think yeah jesus has to be god for it to be a saving grace so let's just layer that a little bit right because in that moment with the person on the ground that i just hit with my car right <laughs> in minecraft what, hypothetically. yeah, yeah, yeah. In minecraft in minecraft so what i always what i always tell people is in these hypothetical situations we can trust that God is always going to do the right thing, you know, all the time, 
There's not one time that God does not do the right thing. So if you're sharing the gospel with somebody who is dying right there, you don't go through all of the, hey, you have to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Like if you don't have the, the, the ability to get all of that out and go into a deep theological dive of, of the Trinity and all of this stuff, in that moment, if somebody is, is saying, I am trusting that from this moment right now, the only way that when I die, because I'm going to die right now, that I'm going to be in heaven is by putting my faith in Jesus Christ. Do you guys think that that is enough? I would well, say that it is. I think I would say so too, because that's, that's where Jesus's grace and mercy comes into play, you know. I think scripture says it best. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Romans and you believe 10, in your heart, and want, nine and 10, that yeah. God raised him for the dead, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're talking uh, partially of a mystery of God. Can we measure each other's lives based on our fruit? Yes. But if a person dies within seconds and they confess that Jesus is Lord and they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and internally they repent from their sins and they die one second later, we leave that up to God. That's a mystery of God. Only God yeah. would know that. So what, I'm sorry, what if, what if they can't speak? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, Man, it's not necessarily words had to, spoken for the comments, as per for the a heart section. repentance, a heart, a heart decision, a heart repentance. Uh, yeah. At the end of the day, we don't decision. need to validate that the man is, uh, is saved. It's between him and his heart and, and I know, God. but somebody could, somebody could pull that argument for a Muslim. You know, hey, they have a good heart. They, I think they the confess word confess that he's Lord, mm. and that's not a, a, a person that can't speak and still confess something. Internally. Yeah, that, that's what I meant. That's what I meant by that. Like, although he didn't verbally say it, you don't need to know that he verbally said it. It's my, he may have said it in his head. If, if you ask you. a murderer, did you murder somebody, and they can't speak and they go like this, they just <laughs> yeah, confessed. Yeah. Yeah, I just the have word to do confess. it for the comment section because so, I've, I've had. I've had people in my comment section hit me with that. Um, Follow-up, because I think this is where some of us will find some disagreement, um, is in the, the nature of what's happening in that moment. And these are things that aren't easy to, to walk through, but in that, can, can a non-regenerate person confess Jesus is Lord? I, I think... I'm sorry. This is, where the, this is where Calvinism and Arminianism... Yeah, well, so what I'm asking right is... Does does the Holy Spirit work upon the heart first, or does the confession happen and then the Holy Spirit work upon the heart? You said that even demons believe. Yeah, it, they're confessing that He is Lord. So they they believe exactly, they but they don't put their trust in you know the finished they, work of Christ. Or the other way to yeah, say like is I they said before I believe we're wrestling with a mystery of God in regards to salvation. I don't think we can make clear distinctions on, on some people's individual salvation if they die two seconds after they make that decision. Yeah. It's impossible. Well, you no, know, amen. And, and my, my point of the question isn't to determine salvation let's, or not. Let's to, take the, yeah. the, the dead body off the, off the floor right he's, now. He's, he's already, already, he's already, already he's gone. gone. He's gone. John Clash already hit him. <laughs> yeah, I already, I already hit him. He went back and That's forth. It. He's That's dead it. already. So... <laughs> I guess part Let's of take it to a broader because I'm, know, I'm hitting yeah, a baseline please. that we're hopefully going to get to later, which is uh, the first actor in salvation. Yeah. Is it us moving towards God or God moving towards us? We'll get there. Right. I know we will we're here now, but that, that, that's kind of my, so my perspective is in that situation that I'll even use my own story as an example. Uh, when I was four years old, sitting on the floor of my house with my parents, I prayed a prayer and said, I wanted Jesus to come into my heart. Um, I don't know. Maybe that was the moment of, uh, I was 
justified before the Lord right then and there. But I do know that it wasn't until I was an eighth grader that really fully confessed and repented of sin. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask you. When you when you said that prayer, were you doing it because they told you to say it? Were you repeating what the, what the words were? That Was that like, or did you actually know, you know, you had understanding? Uh, four-year-old me, I have no idea. I want a time machine and go back. But yeah, so <laughs> well, the way that I would look at my story and why I've resonated in the theological camp that I'm in is I see that growing up in the church, I was preached the gospel, but it wasn't until eighth grade year that the Holy Spirit removed the scales from my eyes. I saw what was true and confessed what I knew to be true because of the work of the Holy Spirit upon my life. And so that's my perspective. I believe that scripture teaches that. And I don't know that we have to be that clear, but um, I think this is where some of us might have. So for transition's sake, can we officially ask the question? Can we move on to that question? Well, yeah, it's kind of in it. The yeah, so, so just for the listeners. Oh yeah, I'm sorry guys. Let's, I'm I'm like just having a conversation with my friends <laughs> on, over here. Like sit, make like that clear <laughs> transition into the. Question. All right. So for those of you who are unaware of the whole Calvinism Arminianism thing, right? Um, it's it's difficult for me to like define the the two, but the Cal. So I'll give you the Armenian position because I'll let you do the Calvinist uh, position, right? Or does somebody, does somebody have, else want to yeah. do the, the <laughs> Armenian position because I'm the host or is nobody Armenian? All right, cool. So the Calvinist position is that God does literally everything, every single thing. And, and there's irresistible grace that like when, when God has chosen you, uh, uh, you, cannot, uh, you cannot resist salvation it's just not going to happen right then you have the armenian side that says uh man has choice right where god could be calling you but you could resist that calling and you know both camps have scripture that they go to in order to um you know talk about their their points you know the armenian side will also dig into the old testament and, and look at how um you know whole entire nations resisted um you know god's call to repentance and and stuff like that um i believe that most people here are more reformed leaning uh so you'll get a a deeper dive into into what reformed theology believes about soteriology and um, I, I think I might be the only, I'm not, there's things I disagree with on both sides of, of Calvinism and Arminianism. I think I'm a, a pretty good middle ground uh, type person. But if, since everybody's like pretty much reformed over here, no, all right, cool, good. I mean, the only part of me that's reformed is the preservation of the saints. That's okay, the cool. So if there's any, <laughs> if there's any place that, so that you know, <laughs> So if there's any place in this discussion that like, you know, I could find an area to like push back on just for, for clarity, I will be doing that, but I will not be fully participating in it because I'm the guy with the little mic. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a very staunch, I don't know, East, you know. Um, Take his mic. Yeah. <laughs> just because like I, 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 in my personal life, I've seen God moving things before I even became a Christian. Um, I've seen him moving things in my life to organize me into the direction of becoming a Christian. At the same time, there was decisions that I had to make in order to put myself there and really put myself into the place where I could say I want to follow God. And then there's a part of me where once I decided, once I made that decision or, or God drew me unto himself, there was still a lot of work that I had to do in my belief and in my the, the way that I live my life to actually 
walk as a Christian. And, and we all know that none of us do it perfectly, but you know, to even get to the place where I am walking instead of crawling as a Christian. And so I don't know where along that spectrum I became justified in the eyes of God, but to me, it seems like it's, to me, I don't know if it's something that I really want to talk about that much. Like, I think it's, you know, it's, it's something that is really important. Yes, that we are justified before God. I think the pinpointing the exact time when, um, I, I really don't know. And I don't even, you know, let me, let me just jump in real quick, even though I literally just said I'm not, um, (laughs) but not, I just, I just want people who are listening to understand that this, this topic right here is a point of a lot of tension in, in, the Christian, uh, in the Christian world, right? So the reason that we're talking about it is, one, I think that it is an important topic to discuss because of the tension that it has caused. But essentially, we're not 100% gonna know how God saved us till we're you know, in front of him asking, yo, so how did this work with the Armenians, and, right? With and the even then, right? I don't know that we'll care. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, like well, the comment section will surely be certain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They'll, they, they'll care. But, um, you know, the, the reason that we're talking about this is because this divides Christians in a place where if you're somebody who is, Ar- in a, if you're an Armenian and you cannot fellowship with a Calvinist, there's something wrong with you. Yep. If you're a Calvinist yes. and you cannot fellowship with an Armenian, there's something wrong with you. These are discussions on how God works in this universe. And these are the only way that we will ever get clarity and unity is if we have the discussions without hating somebody who disagrees with you. Now, there are people who are you know, hyper on one side, hyper on the other that believe that if you're an Armenian, you're a heretic. And then there's people who are, you know, hyper dispensational that will believe that if you're a Calvinist or you're reformed, that you're a heretic. And us here, we just, we don't get it. So that's why we have these conversations. Does anybody here say that they're Armenian? I I used to lean that way Um, since, since expanding on a lot of of reformed theology, I'd say, I, I, I guess I'm a little bit more. Calvinist, but I'm also very charismatic, so I don't know how the two link each other. What do you mean by that? Wayne Grudem's your guy. Um, So I think that I'm somewhere in the middle. I think my default is Calvinism, Um, and it's because I cannot get away from Romans 9. Um, I think that when it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, when it talks about hardening Pharaoh's heart, and using that as a vessel for his glory, I think that you can't get away from that. I know that there's been attempts, and I read uh, Leighton Flowers' book. I actually respect Leighton Flowers a lot, and I just got re- I just got canceled by Reformed folks again, two times. Um, I respect his work a lot, but I think that it didn't cover Romans nine well, and I think that you cannot get away from predestination when you read Romans 9. Now, at the same time, I have a philosophical issue with Calvinists. Um, I think that Calvinists will refuse to say that God predestines people for hell. I think that if you truly talk to a Calvinist and say, um, does God predestine people for heaven? They will say yes. And then if you follow up and say, does God predestine people for hell? 
they will say no, that those people chose hell for themselves by choosing their sin. I think they call it a double predestination. Well, isn't that also part of the theology of revealed will versus, um, what's the other will? I forget. Uh, where he ta- where he talked about so in like the, a big passage comes from I think it's on Isaiah or whatever where it says I don't desire any to go to hell. Um, a lot of people in the Armenian side will pull that out, um, but then I've heard the, the the traditional reform response I've always heard to that is that well God has a revealed will and a I forget what the I forget what the other hidden terminology will. is. I think it's hidden will. Hidden will or something where they said yeah God wants everyone to go to heaven, but because of His plan. Um, he can't or something along those lines. I forget how they exactly explain it. But. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that if you're true to, I think if you're true to the scriptures and you're going to be a Calvinist, I think you have to accept the fact that he predestines people to hell. And if there's any Calvinists that would disagree with that. I think, I well, I think that. we could talk more about that. it, but it would come back down to the understanding of original sin and total depravity from that perspective, because I think that it, there is a, a train of thought that can be said, which is no one chose hell. We were born in a state of rebellion. God chose to save some out of that state of rebellion. And so, so I think if you take that line of thinking, you can make a case not for double predestination, where it predestines some for hell, some for heaven, but all are predestined, or not predestined, but all are in a state of rebellion against God, and therefore the full wrath of God rests upon them. God, out of that all, chooses some. So out of curiosity, uh, this is something I... So my brother's a pastor, and he has an interesting... He has, he has an interesting way of like uh, looking at this topic. Granted, uh, neither of us, I think, fall into a nice box of any category. Um, but a question that he uh, he's asked before and I've, I've mused over before is, must there be a one, one or an other to this question? So what I mean by I that agree. is that does God always like predestine everyone into the church? Or could there be some sort of um, uh, intermingling of the two? where maybe God does predestine some, but he allows for everyone to have an opportunity or something along those lines, as like an Arminian might, might posit it. Do, do they, must they be exclusionary? I don't think, the, I don't think they have to be exclusionary. And, and this is just my train of thought. I love that you mentioned the idea of total, of depravity, because I think that's an important part of this. Like, we are, we are created, we, we're born into this world destined for hell. And we choose to opt out of it by putting our faith in Jesus. And so I think in some ways that speaks to both. Um, that, that's really the only thought I had. So, well, so I, have a, I have a few issues with that line of thinking. Not necessarily that it's not a good argument. For me, again, I go back to the mysteries of God thing. But there's a whole other element that we try to blame God for something deep down inside we know we did. So every sin we've committed in our lives, we know for a fact that we made that decision to sin. So we're looking for free will. We have it. What sin do you want to do on a daily basis? The choice is yours. So although God does have to choose and save some, why? Because if we then look at salvation as something different than any other miracle, we're trying to take credit for something that God does. But let's say I'm crossing the street and a truck is coming at me and God lifts me up over my feet 
and makes me do a backflip, and I land on my feet, and I completely dodge the car. And then John Clash comes in. There. And then it was it was John Clash driving the whole time, right? <laughs> I was waiting. I was waiting. No, but God God lifted me up, and I started flying through the air, and I land on my feet, and I completely dodge the car. We're gonna say, "Oh, thank God, that was a miracle." Thank God. And, and yet we put salvation in a different category, yet it's even more of a miracle than that. Why? Because we know deep down inside that we chose to sin. We made that choice. Now, there's a whole element of God that we might not be sure of, of we're pretending that we could know things like that. But ultimately, I know that I'm a guilty sinner, and I know without a shadow of a doubt that God brought me for someone who wanted nothing to do with church, nothing to do with Christianity, or a little bit of Christianity in all the world into a person that wants to be a pastor and it had nothing to do with me. Question. I love sin. So I know for that that that's a miracle. And I, I give God the glory for it each and every day of my life. I know it's his work and he has authority to do that. And I know deep down inside regardless of the, the gymnastics that we could do through, throughout that question, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I'm guilty. So and I know that al I Along that lines of thinking, um, where, what is the role of free will within the Calvinist? Choose your sin. What sin do you want? And you could, you could choose any sin you want. So can, can we define free will? Because I think this is where uh, we can get to a conversation. of. I think there's a difference between a fully autonomous free will and and a and the Calvinist perspective, which would re, which would reject a fully autonomous meaning, I can choose anything, anytime, anywhere, versus my will is always bent towards sin. That that while while I have freedom of choice, I am still predisposed that my will is bent and marred, and and that's the I mean the definition of total depravity, or I like a better term called radical corruption that I would use is that there is. It's not just a wounding to the human nature uh, that sin is. It's a complete death that we are dead in our sin. Um, and so we need that. And, that. and that's radically, completely, not like 1% left that could act towards God. But I need to be made alive. So when we're getting to this autonomous free will or not, it comes down to, in the, in the Calvinist perspective, would say, uh, we believe in free will, but not in a fully autonomous outside of the corruption of sin. Could you choose your miracle? Did you choose to flip over that car? Or was it God that saved you from it? Was it God that spared death? Sure. You yeah. know what I mean? So that I put salvation in the same yeah. category as that. I, I think that? what you're saying is, is uh, that, uh, that could you choose your miracle? You could make like t-shirts out of that. Because that is a... Uh, that is some real yeah. perspective. No other, no other miracle do people want to choose. They'll give God the glory and, and, and the credit for every other miracle. But yet with salvation, they want credit for something they could have not done. And, and well, I don't think Arminianism is wanting credit more than it's just wanting. Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it's more no, so it, trying it, to it, make a philosophical argument for the reality that there can be some good decisions made. But deep down deep down in the argument is they're taking something that God did and they're attributing it to themselves. I don't think I, so. Yeah, I, I think that, no, they're not taking salvation and attributing it to themselves. I think they're still attributing that to Jesus. They're just saying that they also played a part in the salvation of their life. But my question to 
you guys who are saying that you have a free will to sin, you have a natural bend towards sin. My question is, why do you have that natural bent towards sin? Original, original sin. So did you choose so that? So is, is, is it possible that Adam and Eve had an autonomous free will that now no longer exists because of original sin? Yeah. And so, so I think there is a world where both can exist, where in the garden maybe there was autonomous free will. And Adam and Eve rejected God and chose the tree. And then as a result, all of human nature is fallen, broken right. after and the scripture fact. scripture is clear that there's a curse. Right. So, but you have no choice in that. You were born as a sinner. And so you were born chosen to go to hell, which is what you guys were saying. But then you would then disagree with double predestination and say that God doesn't predestined no, people someone, for hell. Someone, someone that they choose in God their own sins. You from the rebellion of humanity, and and you're you're cursed. You're cursed, and right. the scriptures but, are clear that you're and you cursed. have no choice in that. I but, think it depends on when you're determining the idea of predestination, because like so, the idea of like God predestines those to go to heaven. The predestination or the time when you are saved is whatever, whenever he, I guess, would predestine that timing to be. Um, but as far as God is the one who creates every life, he's the one who breathes into every soul. He's the one that breathes into every human being. Everyone comes to life because of God. And he creates everyone knowing their end and knowing their beginning, like knowing how they're going to begin and end and their future and everything. Um, and so I think, I don't know, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're getting at is that God, by creating people, has already a predestined end for them. It's just that he chooses to take some to heaven and then he, he makes some knowing that they're going to go to hell. And in a sense, he's predestining both. Exactly. By default, you are predestined to hell by him not predestining you for heaven. So what would your definition no, you, of predestination be? You're living within be? your own consequence of your own decision. Because but it's not because you were born as no, a sinner. No, but ultimately you can't stand before God right now and say you did not choose any of those things. There are multiple times in your life where you had clear choices to make and you made that choice. I agree, but were you born as a sinner? With an with a inclination to sin? Right. Sure. So why is it because your fault cursed. if you choose sin? But because you have now as a Christian, you have the ability to, to act upon the righteousness that Christ has given you. Through him, you can choose. The Bible says that you can choose, that you can choose holiness, righteousness, or, or be of the world or, or, or not. We have choices. To well, make. that goes against what you just right. said earlier, where you said you can only choose sin. Well, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say you can only Rewind choose sin. Rewind the tape. No, just kidding. I didn't say you can only choose sin 100% of the time after coming to Christ. If that's we have the I choice said. to choose holiness or to not. That's not what I your, said. Your position so would be a that few, someone before they're a Christian, only thing they can choose is basically sin. Yeah, well, that's why John Clash had a whole think, thing on that. I, I what think, do you expect the world to do but sin? I think maybe that's where I would start to slowly separate myself from the um, uh, T and Tola. Um, is because when I read something like, okay, so like a, a common one is the Isaiah, where all your good works are like filthy rags. Like that's like a common place where people will turn to um, for the total depravity position or even other parts of it where you're dead in your sins, trespasses, um, things like that. But when I, when, I, when I look at the nature of sin, it's when, when I look at Isaiah, when it talks about that you do these good things, but there's always an intention behind those things that isn't purely perfect. Um, sin to me always seems like it, it seeps into everything that even when we do things that are good or can be good, there's always that nature of ours that will, I guess, uh, not make it fully a perfect good. Um, and that's why when Jesus asked, why do you call me good? There's only not good, but one, which is referring to God. 
um, is because God does everything in a fully perfect nature. Um, so I guess, I don't know, I guess, I guess for me, the distinguishment is there are things that are, there are things that someone can do that are good or are, they can notice to be good, like with, from a, even if they're not, not Christian, like they, someone can notice generosity to be a good thing. Um, and they can want to do that because they want to do something that's good, but because of their sinful nature that seeps into everything, they can't do it with a perfectly pure heart. Um, but maybe I'm, maybe I am total depravity in that sense then. I'm just misunderstanding what people mean by that, but I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking out loud now. So the, the way that I've tried to help total depravity be understood, it's not that is you are as bad as you could be. It's that you could be way worse, but that you are always, always that your nature not just your actions. I think it's where we have to, we're talking about the difference between nature and actions that, that you are dead in sin, not like 99% dead and 1% alive, that you are, you, it is a full, full, not just a wounding, not like if I just stabbed you and you're like, oh, I'm a little hurt, so I could still choose, but that I'm completely dead in terms of my salvation. I cannot choose to get out of deadness. But rather, it's the breath of God, the Holy Spirit acting upon a dead person to make them alive, thereby responding to the grace of God. And total depravity doesn't mean that someone can't do a good thing. No, correct. Like a good deed. It's, it's, it's discussing the nature. Can't, can't the nature. Out of the rebellious state that you're in, that, that is polar opposite of what God has intended for you. So can someone have a dead nature and still do something good yeah yes. everybody can yeah. do good everybody because that's that's the so you can choose to do good you can't choose to do good right. and by definition choose choosing yes, to do good would you mean you can choose to do good but you can't choose to be good okay yeah I, I agree you can't that. change no. your own nature so i would agree with that definition i would that's why i was pressing into that because i was like the way the way it was first worded it comes across to me like Every action I do is completely evil. Nothing like there's no 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 but, no, like, no no no. General, and, right, that's how I end. Yeah, goodness okay. around the world. That's clear. No, it has that's, to do with your nature in the fact that you are a new creation in Christ. Right, that you, the old is gone, the new has come. And what what is it that gets changed? Our federal head in Adam fell, and now we need a new head in Jesus Christ. And so, because just like Adam fell, death came to all because all have sinned. Now all can be alive because of Christ. So it's not about a fairness or a choice, but that in Adam, all of humanity is in that state. We didn't choose it. Some might say and say that Adam had the free will to choose it. And then as a result, if we want to blame someone uh, for all of humanity going to hell, we can blame Adam and Eve, not God. God is the one who's enacting that justice. Um, and now you'll say, well, did God predestine Adam to eat the apple? And, and so that's a fair pushback. But I, the, the, I guess the opposite question I would ask, other than philosophically, I think this is what Scripture teaches the question is, how would you understand predestination outside of that perspective? Uh, so let me... Or are uh, we too long into this and we got to move on? No, no, no. We're, no, no, no. This, is, this is one that we can this, stay as, on Again, I little. go back to my original point. We're, going, we're arguing this in a circular way as if none of us can stand before a mirror and say that we're innocent. Like, we are guilty of the choices that we made, regardless of what we don't know about how God, you know, did the whole earth... Ultimately, I know that I can stand before a mirror and say all the sins that I committed, I chose those. And I'm guilty before a holy God. So, Except original sin. Yeah, but you were born to choose those. I was cursed from uh, humanity's choice to rebel against God. Right. I was cursed as a result of that choice. Yes, 
but the Bible doesn't leave it open. He's telling us what happened there. So, so what do we make out of the, the scripture that says that God desires for all to be saved? It goes back to what uh, LT was saying. The, the you know, um, it's like his, why is that word? Why does that escape? Hidden will versus it's revealed like, will. Yeah. And also like permissible will, you know. Yeah. Right. Versus, versus perfect will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So just real quick, I want, I want to um, get your perspective on this. Uh, it's kind of like the Molinist view of things, right? I call it the Doctor Strange in Infinity War, right? It's a great, yeah. So the met, the metaverse, yeah. you know, God. This is I'm, I know I'm going to get pushed back on the comments from this for associating God with Doctor Strange, but uh, essentially, God knowing everything, knowing every possible outcome, knowing every possible outcome in your life, every possible outcome in in every single life that could have possibly been born right? Knows every single universe that could have possibly uh, came into existence. He knows the, the beginning and the end of every single one of those universes, right? This goes into the Doctor Strange at the end of Infinity War because Doctor Strange is looking for the one universe that we quote unquote win in, right? And spoilers, there's going to be spoilers for you guys listening. <laughs> so the only universe in which the Avengers won was through the sacrifice of Tony Stark, right? So, wonder where they got that idea. Yeah. I know, right? I wonder where they got it. So the, it'll, it'll all come full circle, right? So the whole predestination thing, right? If God's outcome, if his desire, as it says in scriptures, that all be saved, right? He knows that no matter what universe he creates, if we are going to have free will, right? even if it's the Calvinistic free will, to choose uh, good, bad, him or not, he knows every single universe that could be created, right? If the end goal is to get as many people to be in relationship with him from a free will choice of being in relationship with him, he knew that this was the universe that would have the best outcome in that, right? So could he have looked through this, the sands of time and you know, looked at every single, universal every single universe possible, saw what everybody's decision would be, and looked at the total number of people who would be saved and said, this is the, the total number of people that could be saved, we're creating this universe. So in that sense, we are all predestined, but were our choices factored in to our predestination? I would think Joe Rogan would love that explanation. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I'd be thinking too much, man. I'd be thinking too much. No, I like Molinism. I think it's cool, but I, I haven't dived too much into it to be able to poke holes in it enough. But I'd love to hear what you guys It's not have something to say. I fully subscribe to. Right. It, it's, it, but it is, you know, as I'm trying to figure these things out that we're hashing out right now in this I'm, discussion. I'm I, was, I was going to say, you, you sound know. like Frank Turk, because that's Frank Turk's response to the predestination question. Oh, Frank yeah, Turk is not a Calvinist, but uh, one person actually I want to listen to is Mike Winger. He's not a Calvinist either. And I want to hear some of his videos on it, because I know he has videos on the topic. But anyway, I just Frank Turk says what you said. My pushback, and I'm, I, I feel like I'm making it difficult to be labeled, but my pushback on that's the a good Arminians. Thing. Yeah, it's good. It's good. My pushback on Arminians or Molinists is Romans 9, like I said earlier, where it says in verse, starting in verse 15, for he says to, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then it continues to talk about how he hardened Pharaoh for his glory and things of that nature. And so I feel like as a default Calvinist who has problems with Calvinists, um, you can't get away from Romans 9 where it says that it's not, it clearly says it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So hold on. I want to go back to that. Would you have less of a problem with Calvinism if they just accepted double predestination? Yes, exactly. Because a true Calvinist, a true, true Calvinist would say yes to double predestination. Yes. And I, I totally respect that. That I think that there's no circular uh, reasoning if you believe in double predestination. I think if you take away God predestining people for hell, I think that that is then circular reasoning and you're you're dancing around scripture and just basic philosophy. We solved it. <laughs> no, no. I'm, well, I'm gonna, so, I'll but, tell you the truth. I'll, I'll go home and wrestle with this a bit more. I never wrestled with that before. So it's going to give me an opportunity to go home and wrestle with something. That's the point of this discussion is, you know, these are, these are, you know, as you say, the mysteries uh, of God and we have, you know, God has given us all we need to live a a good life in relationship with him. He's in scripture. He's given us all that we need. And these are things that we, you know, we're trying to understand the mind Mm. of God and how God Mm. does these things with our finite, uh, reasoning, you know, in, sure. our, in, our, in our fallen nature in trying to understand these things. And I think that, you know, from the, the church fathers all the way up till now, you know, picking away at the scriptures and, 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 and trying to figure these things out, we've, we've come a long way and we've come up with some really good theories on how the scripture explains how these things are done and how God is doing them. But we're essentially still working through them sure. as, a, as the one true church, you know, as a, as a whole unit. We are working through these things. Yeah. And these these discussions are so important because we're just a bunch of regular, sure. regular dudes that love Christ. Who bunch are trying of Joe Schmoes up here. <laughs> well, so the trying to wrestle these things. <laughs> the, the Molinist conversation, I think, brings up a really interesting question in the relation between foreknowledge and predestination. And, and what is that connection? I think First Peter 1 has a really good help on this. First Peter 1, 1 to 2 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. There's a word that some people don't like. Uh, in, in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, in another word some people don't like, uh, may <laughs> grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God here in First Peter 1 and 2. We have this working together uh, for the Eclectos, the chosen ones, right? The elect of God, all here talking about the foreknowledge and predestination. And and the the direction I would encourage those who are thinking about foreknowledge or thinking of predestination is I don't think you can separate the two. I think when we're talking about foreknowledge and predestination, to separate them and say it's based on the foreknowledge of God and the actions of individuals— or it's predestination. It can't be or because the Bible doesn't leave room for or. I think it has to be both and then we have to wrestle through that. Because in the the Molinist example, I would ask this question, is Jesus just a potential savior or is he the savior? 
Because in the multiple universes example of who potentially will say yes the most, Jesus is only sent as a potential. And I think that that gets into a place that is more difficult to wrestle in even than talking about the other perspective. And so when we're thinking foreknowledge and predestination, I wouldn't separate them. I think they have to go together when we're talking about this because we can philo- phil- phil- philosophize, philosophize, yeah, whatever philo- that word is. Philopsil. <laughs> Speaking in tongues. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into it. So, but, but that's just my, that's my encouragement. When, when you're looking at these things, try not to just isolate. Look at how scripture outlines. And if you don't have an understanding of what election is, because you haven't liked the Calvinist perspective, fine. What does it mean? I mean, wrestle with these things and look at what does it mean that God chooses? Because I'm pretty sure if we talk and get to heaven one day and we talk to Abraham and Moses and David, be like, Paul, you chose this, right? No, I did not choose to meet a, a burning bush in, in, the, in the desert. No, I did not choose to be the father of many nations. No, I did not choose to be the one God would give the law to. So that, that, that's just my encouragement to those that might be wrestling through these and have a distaste for Calvinism, which is fair. And I said this in the break, many Calvinists are not kind, not nice, not humble, um, not willing to have conversation. Hopefully we've shown that that can not always be the case. So come check out my channel if you want to. Check out Why Jesus Network. <laughs> um, so he just plugs, plugs that the in. Plugs. Just become, plugs. But become a patron on patreon.com forward slash Bible Thingers. But in a real way, because these are important conversations that I think Calvinists and non-Calvinists need to have in positive ways. So that's my encouragement. Check out First Peter. Look at those things. So as much as I would love to stay on this topic... Yeah, for, we can't keep our, for, our, our guy like, here all day. Because it's, yeah, it's so you know, one thing that the discussion yeah, yeah. proved, though, <laughs> is it's, why this issue is a secondary issue. Yeah. That's one thing that's, that this discussion proved and showed to the world why you should be able to sit down and hash out with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because, I mean, really, it's it doesn't affect salvation whatsoever. But it's definitely interesting to do a deep dive in it because it's beneficial and it's fun. I think it's fun. I I think the only time it becomes a primary is when you're talking about how much did I contribute? How much good work did I contribute? And none of us have been saying that in terms of works. That's where it starts to cross the line. Yeah. Yeah. When when you start taking, uh, doing the plus thing, you know, Jesus plus, you know, I did this stuff. So, and I mean, I think when it comes down to the true, like Armenian Christians and the true, like Calvinist Christians and all the people who fall in between, because not everyone feels it fits into those categories perfectly. Um, I think it also boils down to like, by what I understand, most like really reformed people say faith is actually given to you. The initial faith into Christ is given to you by God, while the Armenian would say that faith itself is not a work, but faith itself is something you can, faith itself is something you can have in Christ but it actually doesn't count as a work. And yeah. that would be normally how the Arminian would say that we don't actually apply any works to our salvation. Salvation is fully through Jesus Christ, 100%, um, but we don't see faith as a work. And yeah, that would be and, the distinguishment too. And Calvinists view faith as, as uh, like that faith is gifted to yeah. you by yeah. God. You know, Because mm-hmm. the, uh, the Bible Ephesians. says so. Yeah. <laughs> We'd have to dig into the Greek on that one. But uh, anyway, let's... Uh... <laughs> so the reason that I wanted to ask that question, the, the probably one of the most divisive questions... Uh, out of everything, a little more divisive than the whole Catholic thing, um, is this brings us into the most important thing, 
which is how we evangelize. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe that Arminians and Calvinists, the, the tools for evangelism are pretty much the same. Go out and preach the gospel. And so this is, this is where uh, it, it comes down to the title of this, the one true church. You know, the one true church, how are we out there evangelizing and, and getting people the gospel? And I, I believe that everybody has um, different strength areas, you know, in, in how they move the kingdom forward in a sense, you know. Um, not that God's not moving it forward, uh, but, <laughs> but you guys get what I'm saying. Um, so um, you guys all have different ways of, of uh, um, like helping people grow in their faith. People who are Christians, giving people perspective on why it's a good idea to become a Christian. So with all of these differences that we have on certain topics, this is one thing that I believe we are all unified on, which is, I've seen I've seen a lot of Arminians mischaracterize Calvinists as not wanting to evangelize, and it doesn't really make sense with me because we may the Calvinists may assume okay there's people that are predestined for hell or or whatever the conversation is we just had, but we don't know who those people are, so we should be evangelizing to everybody. Right. And on the flip side of that, Arminians Arminians think that everybody can go to heaven, so. We don't know who, so we should still evangelize to everybody. So I think at the end of the day, we should we should do our best to to you know make those efforts something that we put a lot of time into. And I, I really think having a clear, concise version of the gospel that that you know and you can repeat over is is like a great first uh, step to learning how to evangelize to others. So I just have to say something uh, because you know, here we are discussing some theological things about like double predestination. And, and when people hear, you know, God predestines people to hell, it's like, why do I want to believe in that God? You know what I mean? Mm. This is what you guys got to understand. Hell, people have this idea of hell as if there's going to be people in there that are like, man, I was so wronged by God. I wish I could be in heaven right now, man. I, I wish I could be over there. Right. It looks like so much fun. Oh, they, they have this idea that they're being, the people in hell are somehow wronged by God. Like, like, like that they really want to be in heaven so bad. But I believe it's C.S. Lewis who says, you know, the, the gates of hell are locked on the inside. Like even wow. when you get to the other side, if Jesus came down, opened the door and was like, hey guys, if you want to put your faith in me right now and, you know, come over to heaven, you could do it. They'd be like, leave me alone, Jesus, That's and shut the, the door. the purpose of the great divorce by C.S. Lewis. He kind of illustrates that point. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that in society, and we'll we'll touch on some of the things that are going on in society uh, We'll touch on that after this discussion. You can see that 100%. Yeah, heaven won't be fun for you if you don't love Jesus, right? Like, you're just not going to enjoy it there. <laughs> so I'm going to give the pastoral answer um, because I think this is important. But our entire church and our liturgy on Sunday morning completely changed because of the gospel. Everything we do on a Sunday morning from the moment our worship begins to the, the closing benediction, we've reordered so that even, even someone who's in church on a Sunday who may or may not be saved is going to see the gospel just in our liturgy and how we pray and how we confess sin and how we worship and how we hear the word of God preached. And so I think when we're talking about evangelism, first thing that comes to people's mind is going out into the street corner and telling someone the gospel. That's part of it. But also this preaching your gospel, the gospel to yourself daily so that when you gather as a corporate community to worship God together is the thing you're reminded of the gospel. And that's 
what our church started to do because we felt that it was so important in our culture today that the gospel be so explicit, not just in our preaching, but in our, our singing, in our praying, in our gathering, even in the bulletin that they take home from church, the gospel is presented there. And so I think as we start to think how we present the gospel, it starts to change how we do everything it has for us as a church. I think, well, I guess it depends on how we're, I guess, looking at this. Are we looking at it from, like, what is evangelism? Or are we looking at, like, practicals of how to evangelize? All of the above. Okay. Well, <laughs> I want to I speak into something. So, again, as I said, I grew up in the more Mennonite background. Um, a lot of my extended family are uh, very, very conservative, like Mennonite, Amish, Anabaptist, extremely conservative. Um, there is a general repulsion, a general pushback against technology. Um, of, of course, if you look at Amish especially, it's, anyway. So there's this general pushback in where I grew up against technology in general. But I've, I, I've, I've been realizing through content creation, I've been realizing through um, just other people I know who do ministry, the internet is a great place to start doing evangelism nowadays. 100%. Um, it's definitely, definitely still important for discipleship. For discipleship specifically, it's still important for people to have people in their lives who are Christian to walk them through things. But as far as sharing the gospel and as far as getting the message out there, the internet is a great place to do that. Because there's been plenty of people who said, yeah, um, how I came to know about Christianity or how I became curious about Christianity or how I became um, actually learned about the gospel or got help got saved and stuff was through forums online, was through videos online, was through um, Xbox Live was another one I've heard of. Um, people, there's this one guy I know of who does ministry on Xbox Live. Um, I rebuke you. And, <laughs> and, and so coming. the internet's a great place to introduce people to the gospel, to teach the gospel. And people actually do legitimately have the Holy Spirit work in their lives through using the internet and people on the internet um, to get people to salvation. Now, I still think, again, discipleship, for discipleship purposes, from that point onward, it's very important for them to have someone in their life who's actually walking with them. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it spikes curiosity just by creating content and, and pushing things out on the internet. I mean, that's where half the new generation is on, right? Every, if anything, and all of our past generations, are st whoever's still alive, they're still using the internet, whether it's Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever it is. You know, they they're using some sort of technology, and being able to use the internet as a tool or as a way of pushing the gospel, that's, it's essential, especially today in, in this age. 4.7 billion people are on social media. Yeah. 4.7 yeah. billion. You know, I've seen it through, through my page. I feel like, I feel like my page was, was created more for those church hurt people because that's, that's really how I felt. I felt church hurt, you know, but I'm I'm seeing the shift too because people are like okay but but what about this and and why why is your god better than my god or whatever the case may be you know it's spiking the curiosity because they're seeing the love of god through the the internet through my uh my YouTube channel you know and and if everyone else can push that in and with good theology but expressing the love of god and and but also with that firm hand, right? Because it's it's not all about, you know, just, oh, yeah, you know, God is love and God is grace and God is this and God. You have to also create that discipleship and, and teach people how to stay firm, how to uh, how to actually, you know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing my words here. But it's it's how to do exactly what it is that we're trying to do. Get them to do the same thing. Get them to push the message as well. But live that faith in that, that live that life in faith. 
Yeah, bro. The the internet is like a total cesspool of just horrific nonsense. Um, and really, that's where, to quote Elon Musk, that is the public square now. That yeah. is where life is happening, is on the internet. But since it's so horrific, I think it's easy for a Christian to check out and be like, I want no part of that. And that was myself. I have, I have zero personal social media because I just don't even want to look at it because it's, it's, it's crazy, everything that you can see on the internet. But I was convicted of that and by reading a book called Digital Dominion uh, by a fella named Jeff Mingi. And he's basically talking about how if you're not preaching the gospel on the internet, why? So, what are you doing? I mean, I can actually give a response from someone who comes from a background where people give responses to that question. Um, the big one is uh, the one I hear the most frequently from people within the more conservative um, circles would say that the temptation and the debt withdrawals are actually greater than the opportunity. So um, the temptation, let's just take a big one, all guys here, pornography. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know, I know for some people, actually, I would tell them you should get away from your cell phone and actually not be on the internet for the next month because they're so addicted to pornography that if they go on their phone, they're just going to end up going to places. Don't you have a great um, video on your channel talking about how you put down your phone for 24 hours? Uh, yes. I, I think I do you a do. Video about 24 hour video. Yeah, yes, yes. I thought you were going to talk about my pornography video. No. I, <laughs> but, um, but no, so. Wait, 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 wait. There's wait, a pornography oh, video. Oh, 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 wait. Wait. How to escape. I have a video about the terribleness wait. of pornography. Oh, okay, not, okay. Uh, okay. Words matter. Yeah. Define your terms. Definitions matter. Um, but all that to say, yeah, that would be the response is that the temptations or the inability outweigh the um, the actual benefits of the Internet. Um, so I can see that for sure. And I think if, if you're a new Christian or if you have struggles to do that, then sure, stay away for your own spiritual maturity and growth. But I think that if you want to evangelize this generation you have to be evangelizing on the internet and i think yeah. that's why what we do is so important because we are that voice in the world and i think that if anybody's watching our panel and they feel like they want to make a difference too i think they should start a youtube channel too and preach the gospel and tell people about jesus it's, it's, the, it's the fastest I, way to reach a, a ton I of people i totally agree but just like i don't think virtual church should um replace your local church i don't think that you know, evangelism on technology should replace missions. Right, Amen. but that's where yeah. that's where that part comes in where you, you actually teach these people as well. You know, because one thing I mention all the time, although you're seeing these videos, that doesn't mean you can't go to church. That doesn't mean you can't congregate. Being yes. with like-minded people is important. It keeps you in the faith. It keeps you, one, accountable. You know, how many people do... I, I used to be addicted to pornography. You know, now that we're speaking about it, I used to be addicted to pornography. What helped me? Accountability. Yep. But I couldn't do that just by looking at other YouTube videos. I needed somebody physically, hey, how yes. are you? You yes. know, I needed that person. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. All the stuff we're doing is amazing. Yeah. Keep pushing. Keep going. Make as many videos as you can if God is calling you to do that. But I also want to encourage anyone watching or you guys, go on mission trips too. Because uh, when I got trained in my church to go to South Dakota, um, and I know it's a part of America, but... We're very Americanized in the way we think of evangelism and missions. But when you go to South Dakota, especially on, you know, where where it's like 
dinosaurs still live. That's how it looks. <laughs> you know, even though it's a part of America. If you're watching from South Dakota, we love you. Yeah, yeah, they, we love you. They South don't Dakota. have. They Bunch don't have an Americanized way of, of looking at things. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of those people don't look at the internet. You might think, oh, they're a part of America. No. So we had to sit through a class to learn all about their culture, learn about the language they speak, learn about how they view Christianity. They view Christianity as the white man took their land. Yeah. And the white man took wow. their land and the white men were Christians. So These are natives. You think they're going to care? Yeah, the natives. Yeah, you should qualify that, that you went to yeah, a reservation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I went on a reservation. That was not the Dakota I, I was thinking about. Um, I went on a reservation <laughs> yeah. uh, where, where essentially these people were casted there, and they don't want to give up their land because that's where their families were, and, and that's what they have. Uh, they're not looking at, you know, I'm not getting into CRT here or racism or anything like that. This is completely different. This is, they're not looking at a white man on YouTube and saying, oh, I want to hear what those Christians have to say. That's true. Yeah. They're caring about how you impact their life. I mean, that goes back to the whole thing that everyone has plays a different role within the church. I mean, the hand, feet, eyes, all that stuff. Um, I mean, it goes back to even, like, if you look at the apostles, you see this, where Paul was primarily focused on reaching the Gentiles, while um, Peter and stuff was primarily focusing on Jewish communities and stuff. Like, each person has their own role to play within the church. Each person has their own calling to a certain extent. Each person... Um, reaches different people groups, um, and because as one person you can't do everything. But I do a, agree. But but I think me personally, I feel that all Christians should be called to do missions up to some point, go on a mission trip, even if it's once every couple of years, because there's uh, there's there's things that you can encounter there that you can't encounter anywhere else in your life that will help you grow spiritually, and you will impact other people's lives that you cannot impact here. So, so the, the verse I keep coming back to about this, and I, I'll take it bigger than missions trips, Ephesians 4.12, is it, it's the, the job and the role of the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And what is the work of the ministry? To proclaim the gospel, because Romans 1, we believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and we're not ashamed of it. So the, this idea of what is the role of the church, the role of the church is to be sending out daily missionaries, equipping them to go do that. What has church become? Come and consume. Come and, come and get something you want and then go home. And so I think what we're seeing is a push and a change on, in content as well. But if it doesn't change from the pulpit and it doesn't change from churches to equip people to go do gospel ministry. And gospel ministry might look like, hey, I work in an office building and I'm going to get to know every single person in this office building. That might be your gospel ministry, right? So... I think giving vocational ministry and understanding to this next generation, the people here is, is really huge. I think in the way that uh, uh, the church has become a building, we can't allow the church to become the internet. You know, it, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be the way that, that it was intended. We gather as a church, not as, not we, we're church. not in the church. Yeah, yeah. We gather as a church, not in the church. Um, so I think you guys covered it well, you know, we may disagree, like if you listen to what we were just talking about and how the conversation was, was going, and then we talked about how to evangelize, right, the excitement is on a whole other level, and that's how it should be. Yes, we should be excited to talk about our differences and, and, and figure them out, but the most excited that we are is when we're talking about how is it that we are trying to impact the world and, and bring people to Christ. 
And I think that that's a clear sign of where our focus should be as a, as a church, as the, one, as the one true church, you know, on the Why Jesus Network. Make sure that you share, uh, like, subscribe, all that stuff. So, <laughs> so before we close out, you know, there's some political things going on right now. Uh, and one of them being the Church of England is, uh, you know, looking at maybe changing God's pronouns to be non-binary. See, you guys are going to have to inform me on this because I was going to say, I'm I was not aware of this. Welcome to the team. Yeah. Um, so it's exactly what I just said. We, we can play the clip right now. Yeah. Play, play the clip. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> All right, <so laughs> You're just giving me more work, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, maybe we didn't play the clip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we did, awesome. If not, Angel did not get paid any more or less. Um, we'll, we'll double it. Yeah, we'll, dub, we'll double We'll double it. More bagels. More bagels. <laughs> you can always pay uh, me. So anyway, what's going on? One of the things going on is the Church of England has discussed changing God's pronoun from him to they. What wow. is your opinions and how do you think wow. we have gotten here? So funny enough, actually, on Fantastic. a recent video I released um, a couple of days ago, a couple, a couple of videos ago or whatever, um, I had uh, one of my friends come on and we were just look, watching TikToks and, you know, re, re, he was reacting to them as like a, a former pastor and, you know, theologian stuff. Um, and one of the things that came up during one of these TikToks was, um, uh, is God a man? And they weren't referring to Jesus, by what I understand. They were like referring to the concept of God being referred to as he. Um, and they jumped into the no category. Now, I think they were like, you know, like universalist Unitarians. So, you know, in a whole different camp. But uh, when we were during that discussion, um, when we were talking about it, we were kind of playing that out. And I made I made the comment. I'm like, well, I think the, the big thing behind this is the reason why people can easily more easily justify outside of a human context where we talk about uh, gender. Um, the reason why it's easy, easier to justify is because people agree from a theological standpoint that God is, is genderless. Like the spirit of God has no gender. Um, and that's why people can go down that category of like, well, logically speaking, you know, God has no gender. So therefore he's genderless. And actually when I, when I, when I proposed that, I did get someone in the comment who was like, that's a completely modern concept. The church is screwed and stuff. And I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't even proposing that, that, that I agreed with that sort of like reasoning that we should go from there to using yeah. gender neutral terms. I was just saying that I think that's where this this really breaks down is because that's where this argument will start. Well, logically, God's not a gender. I agree with that. I think people say God is spirit, right? And, and so because God is spirit, technically, they can ascribe to him whatever pronouns they see fit. The This problem kind of happens, I think, because we've eroded the idea of, of, of an objective truth and we've eroded the idea of, um, you know, the found the the uh, what's what's the word the influence of Christian Christianity in England or in America or whatever and so we the the general public people who are not Christians use the word God uh, in a different way that Christians use it but because of the culture that was created in those places they called him he now that Christianity is eroding in those societies including America they don't see the need to do that anymore so now. Things like the Church of England, which I, I don't know where they stand, uh, uh, like as far as their doctrine goes, but because they're influenced by the culture so much, um, it's easy for them to just play into this progressive language and just be like, well, if God is genderless, technically, then we should say they because it would be more appeasing. Well, and I would say if God is genderless, let's respect God's desired pronouns. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I, like, 
he's revealed himself. Now, to be honest, they is pretty Trinitarian. So, they're, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, wait, are you a polytheist? No, no, no. But, but the, the reality would come is what do you believe about the authorship of scripture? Because yeah. I think this is getting into a question of inspired words or not. Yeah. And, and, and that is a, a deeper conversation than preference. And that's why for some of you watching, you might be, why is this a big deal? If God is spirit, isn't that fine? I'd say, if we didn't have the written revealed word of God, that conversation might be okay. But we have written revealed word. Well, you, well I think this also impacts theology because you look at it, you look, you look at how in um, the epistles where the, uh, I think it's either, Paul, I think it's Paul mostly in the epistles where he talks about um, church structure. He talks about gender rules. He talks about these different topics. And he talks about this idea like, you know, um, uh, you know, why submit to your husbands as Christ, um, you know, as, as a church submits to Christ and all these different things. Uh, I think I said that wrong. Um, we know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got it, we got Ephesians it. But, 5, we got you. <laughs> yeah. But um, but there's this idea of rules within the human community. There's this idea of rules and par partially the whole, what makes sense of that is that God is referred to as he that gives us a reference to the role that we play as humans on a sexual um, front. And this, this affects our theology of sexuality. It affects our theology of church rules, gender rules, the role of church to Christ. Um, and so I think there is a theological importance to him being, to God being referred to as he. Absolutely. Not to mention that Jesus actually came down in the form of a man. Right? Yeah. So I, 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 I do want to, I do want to call something out. Now that you said something wrong, you didn't no, say anything wrong. I, I but can. a point of clarification. So you said that we need to respect God's preferred pronouns. I want to be easy there. What? What would you say to somebody in the comments section, because I know we're going to get this if we get enough views on here, that says, wait a minute, you want to respect God's preferred pronouns, but you don't want to respect mine. You're satire. not God. Satire. I mean, this is oh, where yeah, I think no, words it's matter. Satire, I would have never structured the sentence that yeah, way. Yeah. Sure. And for that very reason, but since you did, we got to ask. We, we, and <laughs> so it comes back to, it, it's the double standard because I'm not the one coming here and saying, I, I'm changing God's pronouns, but if if the people that are who want to change God's pronouns are also the same people that are demanding we respect their pronouns. So from their perspective, they've already played the pronoun game, and so they've already demanded of the world to respect, but they're not going to respect God's. So I was more trying to point out their hypocrisy than our willingness. Does that make sense? Yes. So the, they're, they're demanding that the world recognize how they've identified while we're sitting here and going, but you're unwilling to recognize how God has identified. I like that. So that's, good, that's more good, what I meant. By another thing. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, if we're going to go ahead and give ourselves the authority to change he into they in the Bible, what can't you change after that? Yep. Right. Where is the eroding of when of something else right. happens in the culture? and it's controversial that the Bible says something else, are we just going to change that too and then just continue to butcher the Bible until it's and not usually, even the original, it doesn't match the original text? And, and a lot of people will say, well, the Bible's already been corrupted, and that puts us into a far different conversation to actually talk about manuscript evidence, <laughs> which I, I know you're going to laugh. We're not going to go there, but I, but I think that th well, that's I laugh because um, that's the biggest thing I get with all, I the Muslim community. Yeah. I absolutely tries to shred the biblical history, which 
I just, I just, anyway. We'll do another Did you panel ask him on if the pu- moon was split in two, if that's <laughs> historically accurate. Wait, what? Because that's what the Quran says that that Muhammad split the moon in half. He made two moons. I don't, I don't, rem- <laughs> I don't know about that. We'll do another panel on apologetics. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be on that panel. That would be a fun panel. Yeah, yeah definitely. Cool. So, how do you, you know, ask the question? How do, how do you, how do you think we got here? Um, and I think it goes to kind of what Ryan is saying. It's like the culture is, is now influencing the church instead of the church influencing the culture, you know? And in, you, you see it mostly in these, uh, these progressively secular societies. America is becoming more progressively yeah. secular. Uh, England has been secular for a very long time. Um, but if you look, what's, what's interesting is people think that because in America and in, uh, in, in, England that the church is quote unquote dying, right? They think that Christianity's done. But that's not the case. Because if you look growing. Yeah, if you look yeah. everywhere else, it's yeah. growing faster than ever before. Oh yeah. In places where it's the, it's the most oppressed, right? Now, what I want to pose is do you think that these societies in which it is growing fast will ever get to the point where they're dealing with the nonsense that we're dealing with here in you know, in the church with like now literally having to defend God's pronouns. I think, I think yes and no. Like every culture, I think there's going to be more of a homogenization of culture to a certain extent with the internet, with inner travel and with, um, you know, stuff like that. Unless, unless governments actually make a concerted effort to isolate themselves or make a concerted effort to make themselves unique. I think there will be this general kind of homogenization to a certain extent. Um, and I also think that a part of it is, I think the part of the secular side of things, um, comes from two things. One, the enlightenment, it comes from this idea that, well, we got to question everything, which then led to postmodernism, which then led to, well, we got to question truth, which then led to this complete, yeah, which was, which was this this complete nonsense that we have nowadays. Um, and so I think if the, I think if communities have, I think if these other countries, as they develop further, get more technology, get more of these scientific things, if they ever hit a period where they have like this enlightenment moment where they're like, oh, we need to question everything. Um, and then I think it'll lead to that. But if I think if they avoid that enlightenment period and they kind of keep sticking with a more traditional route, but still growing in development, I think it is possible to escape that thinking. Yeah, I think the, the the Church of England is unique because you know it's his the, its historicity is one that's tied to the government and therefore tied to the culture and tied to all these things. So in places where they don't or they have never had a state church, it's going to be a little bit different than than some place like England or even here, where the, the kind of the point of America from the foundation was that you could practice whatever branch of Christianity you wanted to. You didn't have to be Anglican, you didn't have to be you know whatever. And so that I think is a little bit of a different comparison but I do think to some extent we're we're facing the same the same problems as England uh, with you know just the the woke side of the progressive yeah. Christianity and how it's pretty much dominated all the mainline denominations to an extent uh, but I think what's happening in response is that independent churches are kind of that are rising up that are kind of inflating those numbers and whether we're on the same page as them doctrinally or not they are inflating the numbers of evangelicalism and therefore 
Christianity as a whole in America. So you have places like I, I've I've heard of three charismatic churches pop up in New York that are huge within like the last six months. You know, and I think those things aren't going into the statistics. And so people are looking at the mainline, um, you know, mainline denominations and saying they're shrinking. Where in reality, people are leaving there and going to something more, a little bit more charismatic. And, <laughs> and the hope is in that that it's still centered on scripture, right? And, and that and that's. Any, any church that, that begins or starts, that would be the hope and prayer to find that. And, yes. two, and two things I think to note. One, um, the numbers of any religion doesn't determine its truth. The numbers of yeah. any belief system doesn't right. determine how true it yeah. is. And secondly, I am actually more encouraged by the fact that when I hear people like talk about how the church is, I'm not encouraged in the sense I'm happy the church is shrinking. I, don't misquote me on this. But what I'm saying is I, I, I'm, I'm more glad when people say I don't identify with the church and completely disassociate from the church than trying to say, well, I'm Christian, and but not actually believe or live out any of the principles. Mm -hmm. I'd much rather see a world that becomes more secular and completely just denies Christianity altogether and the true church be actually remain to the core doctrines than have this giant, like we have 3 billion people in the church, but 99% oh, of them don't agree yeah. with all the core principles of the gospel. Like I'd much rather just have this yeah, I'm on the same true, the you. true. Yeah. 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 Less the Christians, but more potent church. church. The, the, the one true church. So just, just to guide this, I'm, I'm sorry, we're going to be wrapping up soon, but just to guide this into, um, you know, the society that we're living in, in now where, uh, you know, we just had the Grammys that happened is like a big thing with, uh, with, I thought his name was Stan Smith, like the Adidas, um, you know, where he did like a whole, uh, the song was titled Unholy. So he did an unholy performance, which I thought it was hilarious that people got so upset. It's like, well, what do you expect? It's the one, it's the Grammys. Like, I mean, the song, the song beckons for the whole thing. Yeah. Like it's called Unholy. And like, we yeah. didn't grow up. Uh, the Jay-Z song got me more mad. Than I didn't even Sam's, watch it. Than the. To Sam Smith. What JC? Yeah. Sam Smith, right? Which I didn't even watch it. See, see you don't even got the, the right name. Sam, I don't even care about Sam Smith. Sam Smith. Sam Smith. No, the Jay-Z performance got me more mad when they sat around the table like the Last Supper. Yeah. And they had this song uh, called... Uh, God Did. God oh, what? God, God Did. did. And he has a four or five minute verse all about how God did, but it's all about how Hove did it. So he's literally rapping about himself. Uh, the whole song corny I don't really watch these things so I'm so, not yeah, I don't, I don't you sit from around you, guys. <laughs> you sit around the last supper you have a song called God did and then you rap about yourself for five minutes <laughs> you know it's like so, yeah. again I think it, I think it keeps coming back to this idea of um, the, the the ideas and the motifs and the teachings of Christianity will always be skewed and will always be taken and will always be used. And, and it's meant to bring, and we've seen this from every artist. How many artists have pretended to be Jesus or stepped into some weird little Nas X moment? Or, I mean, we could go off on all these things. What it all comes back to is as a, as a parent and one who works with students, each of those is teachable moments. So I'm actually thankful that the world is going to be the world that explicitly because then it gets to say, we, I can put that in front of people and go, what is wrong with this? Like, let's yeah. actually have a conversation. Right. And if you I, don't see something wrong with it, oh boy, we have more the, of a conversation. The whole Satan thing doesn't really bother me because sure. that's who they're worshiping anyway. The, the things that bother me is when they take Bible stories and they reenact them and spit in God's sure. face. Yeah. That's what yeah. gets me annoyed because then you're making fun of Christianity instead of just, you know, worshiping Satan like you've always done. Well, you know, I think a lot of them don't even see it as making fun of Christianity. They just don't understand what Christianity actually believes. Like not even, a lot of people. So I've don't talked, depict it at all then. 
they they don't know what's offensive or inoffensive, so they don't they probably even only don't even think about it. Like you can't. You Can you can't imagine a Grammys something. performance though, where they reenact a scene of the Quran, or or they dress up like Hasidic Jews? I don't find that to be a very compelling argument, only because everyone knows that. 90% of America is secular or Christian. And so it's not culturally relevant to do either of those things. If it was culturally relevant, maybe. I mean, Muslim religion is huge. Not in America. Yeah, but America is not founded on Muslim values. Yeah, and, it's also and, a touchy, and I think yeah. like Christianity has become such an integral part of the country that people pull from it as any kind of reference, artistic reference, storytelling reference. It's just embedded in it. And so it becomes e the easy thing to make fun of, the easy thing to critique, et cetera. Oh, no, the party's over. Grammys and instantly oh, that's, boom, it. oh. <laughs> um, that's God saying this conversation's yeah, yeah. over it's now. Over. <laughs> it's over. Bring Stan, Stan Smith. Yeah, Stan. <laughs> that guy Stan um, is the worst. So, just to to come in for for a close on this subject, um, I think it's interesting when we see a whole entire world that's just rebelling against Christianity, right? Like. They cannot stand Christianity. If you want to be this, you want to be that, you want, that's totally cool. Let's make fun of Jesus. You know, let's, let's spit in the face of Christians. To me, that is validation that Christianity is true. Because it, you- We're the only ones that are attacked that hard. Yeah. And not to say that, you know, in certain parts of the world, uh, you I was going to say, people yeah. would argue that their religion is also persecuted depending where they're at, depending yeah. what country and what I, place I you look at. It's definitely, I mean, I think Christians got it on the I mean, persecution level. Christians, you know? Christians are getting attacked even in other countries, man. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I no, but what I'm saying is... Correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but if, if Christians... I think Christianity is the only religion that when persecuted grows. I don't know of any other religion that when persecuted... I mean, there's definitely persecution in other religions. Yeah. yeah. But it's not in the size of... of yeah, of well, the, I was just... I wanted to, to preface that because I, I, I'd see the comments like, what? What do you mean? Other religions aren't being persecuted. It's like, yes, we know. In pockets around the world, there, there are different religions being persecuted. But overall, the absolute rebellion against Christianity, like, people hate it so much, like, with a passion. To me, that is clarity that I'm probably doing the right thing by being a part of this. So what's your guys' perspective on, you know, this, this, why is Christianity hated so much and displayed so much in, in culture? Church hurt. Church hurt. Uh, I can't, I can't, church hurt. Oh yeah. It's so many people are just church hurt. I mean, you ask these people, oh, you know, why, why do you hate Christianity? Oh, because all you guys do is just ask for money and, and, and take money from people and manipulate people. A lot of them are, are struggling with this idea of we also, because we're called Christians, we can't be sinners. We, oh, you guys are Christians. You guys think you're perfect, but yet you guys are doing it. No, we go to church because we're, we're, we are sinners. We're trying to be perfect. We're trying to do good, right? But at the end of the day, we can't, we can't just, you can't sit there and say, oh, well, these guys are sitting here and calling themselves the one true church. So that means they must be perfect. No, at the end of the day, we're just human and we might make a mistake. Uh, who, who goes to a gym and expects to see somebody completely perfect, never breaks their diet, never does anything, right? You go to a gym. Oh, no, I'm not going to go to that gym because there's, there's a fat person there. And, and clearly he's not, he's not really working out. No, you know, that at the end of the day, you, you have to. You have to understand that we're just humans, but yes, church hurt is 
the reason why so many people hate Christians. Because there are those Christians that like to make themselves like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm Christian. I, nobody can touch me. You know, and that unfortunately puts a bad stain on us. But we're here trying to correct that. I, I, I mean, I believe that we are. I think that could be part of it. But I think that another big issue is people don't like to be told what to do. And yeah, they want to live, yeah. live their own life. And whenever you tell them, well, the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong or the Bible says that committing adultery is wrong or stealing is wrong or any sin. I don't want to single out one specific sin. People get offended because they want to continue living in that sin. And we're telling them that God doesn't like that. And I think that's one of the reasons why Christianity is so hated, because it kind of tells people, you know, this is God's moral standing and, and you need to live this way. And they don't like that. It's yeah. a multifaceted yeah. question because obviously every single person has multiple reasons for why they like or dislike or hate something or whatever. It's like it's always multifaceted in that regard. Um, I agree. I think from if you look at from like a Christian understanding of human nature, we shouldn't be shocked that people hate Christianity um, because, as you said, like they, everyone's a sinner and people don't like being told that they shouldn't be sinning anymore and that they're doing things wrong. Like even like that's just the natural inclination is that I don't want to be wrong. I don't I can't have the fact that I'm wrong. Uh, I'm sinning and stuff like that. That, that in itself is offensive to people. And I mean, the scriptures even say this will be offensive and it'll divide people and all that stuff. So like by its own, by, by that standard alone, it's going to be offensive. I think it's also part of it, part of the reason why it's, it's hated is, so I'm speaking from someone who speaks to other religions and people and my audience is so out there in the world. Um, there's also the history of Christianity that people tend to have a problem with. Right. Um, they associate it with colonialism or they associate it with um, slavery. They associate it with these different things uh, because of the history, not just church and like the present, but the history of the church itself um, being seen as an invading force um, and which wasn't always good. Um, and so like that's part of it too. Like some people from uh, like in like from other countries, especially like um, African countries and stuff, associate it with colonialism. They associate it with that, and they're like, they're, it, it leaves a disgusting taste in their mouth because of that reason. Right? Too. They look at the history and say, "Oh no, this is what this is what we associate Christians with." So I want nothing to do with it. Yeah, it's a typical, um, you know, this is the white man's religion, all that, all that kind of, you know, subjective stuff that people hear. I think that there's a <clears throat> a degree of it as well. That's just the lack of understanding of what the actual gospel is. I think. Um, we used to teach the Bible in schools. That no longer happens. I went to Catholic school. Thank God, I at least got some glimpse of Scripture growing up. Um, but I, I think just the fundamental misunderstanding of the point—not even like doctrinally appropriate, like the, just the point of Jesus—just goes over people's heads most of the time. And culture doesn't help. You know, art yeah. like what happens with Jay Z and Sam Smith—that doesn't help. Like people are further and further from even understanding not only whether or not they need a savior, but whether or not they're even sinners. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, you have to convince people that they're sinners today. And that to me is fascinating. Like I know, like me knowing myself, I know how bad I am. I know I'm not perfect. To think that there's people that just don't want to even admit that they can or have done wrong, that I think is a problem in itself that's caused by postmodernism, that's caused by this lack of objective morality that says any truth can be anybody's truth, whatever's good is whatever I say is good. So I think a lot of that you know, adds to the fire. It's also important to make, to remember that People are relational people. So when you tell them that 
um, that they believe something that's wrong, that's leading them to hell. You're not only saying that about them, you're saying that about their friends and family and their whole. Yeah. So like when I, when I'm on my channel, um, and do uh, normally on my live streams is when I get more into the differences between Christianity and Islam stuff, um, things like that. But like when I do, when I'm on my channel, a lot of it goes back. I remind myself the a big reason why there's this repulsion against Christianity is not only because am I telling them that they're wrong, their family, their community, maybe even their most of their country is fallen. Well, I, while I agree with all of you, I think it's far simpler than everything you've said. It was predestined because Jesus said so. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Jesus promised us. Jesus promised us that the world was going to hate us. Um, yes, and so yeah. I, I don't think there should be a surprise. I think there are times we need to make sure that we are not hated because of how we've treated the world versus, uh, I mean, if we're hated for the doctrine of what scripture teaches, we can't. We can't fight that. But if people legitimately think we hate them because of how we treat them in real relationship, not in hypothetical, this is what the church has done, but in real, I look you across the table and you think I hate you based on the way we, I'm treating you, I think that's more of something that we each individual Christian can deal and, with. And versus this is difficult in our postmodern age because um, it's really hard and uh, going to the whole thing about postmodernism, it's really hard in America or really hard in this postmodern age to distinguish the difference when people talk about their church hurt. Because you talked, I've talked to someone before um, who he grew up within the church or whatever. And he's like, well, I have gay, you know, gay feelings and things. And uh, they just, they, they just hate gays, you know, they just hate gays. Um, and he left the church because of that. And based on how he was talking, he was like, it's so legalistic and all that stuff. And, and you talk to some people, the problem that sometimes I have within this postmodern age, and maybe some people have, can speak into this, is how to discern when talking to someone, is it actually that they were actually treated wrong? Or did they actually just disagree with doctrine and because of their postmodern lens, they interpret it as an attack on themselves? Well, so this is uh, Carl Truman's work, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, also Strange New World, the less scholarly work, where it says, how did we get here to this train of thought where everything about identity is so wrapped up in expressive individualism, mm -hmm. meaning this idea of how I express my desires is my identity. So if you suppress my desires in any way, you're not just saying my desires are bad, you're saying to the core that my identity, whether it be some of the things we talked about or anything, if you stop my desires and wants, I'm going to be repulsed and push you away. And the highest good is to act upon my internal desires. The highest evil is to suppress those. So all of a sudden the church becomes the place of the highest evil to the world because we're saying, no, deny yourself, take up your cross. Well, we're not saying that. Jesus is saying, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And if I had to pinpoint or guess at a time when that became a mainstream idea, it would have to be the free love movement in the 60s and yeah, 70s, yeah, like absolutely. Woodstock era, I think brought that idea of like radical acceptance to the forefront. And then those kids went on to become college professors and, you know, people in the, in, in the government and all these things. And now that's what's influencing the culture. And they're essentially the gatekeepers of any kind of position of power in our culture. I mean, it was even happening before the 60s. You have Frederick Nietzsche in the late 1800s, right, 1900s. Right. And then you have um, Freud and these different things. Freud, Wilde. It, it started Rousseau. in the academic field and then right. trickled down into yeah. culture. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm mainstream right because yeah. you know, of course there's going to be uh history with those ideas that they have to you know bubble up somehow word that's all i have to say see you guys on the next no um <laughs> all right guys so 
we've covered so many topics uh, in this short time that we've been together. I just want to first say thank you so much for being here. I feel like even though we've covered all this stuff, it, it covered all these topics, it's flown by. Um, and we've been here for a long time, you know, so long that uh, we have the Calvinists predestined to text during my closing arguments. My wife uh, asked. <laughs> hey, I left my wife and kids three hours away. To... But um, so I just want to say thank you guys. And if you have any closing things to say before we, uh, before we tune out. Like, share, and subscribe. <laughs> uh, no, uh, the, just honored to have you guys here. It's been awesome to talk with you and uh, really just get to know you guys on an actual personal situation, not just you know through text message, thread, or whatever. Um, but I'm happy that we got to do this. Hopefully, we'll get to do more. And thank you guys all for coming yeah, out, coming awesome. out to Jersey. You know? Well, and and now because we've met face to face, I feel like I can go even harder in the group chat. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. No, it was, it was, I agree it was with great. That. It was great meeting all of you guys and, and sharing the thoughts and, and the ideas that we have. I mean, you guys definitely definitely gave me things to question and, and to look into. I've never really looked into election and predestination. I've never it's never come up. Right. But to, it's nice because we're it's things like this that allow people to question certain areas of our faith, you know, and, and we grow as Christians by doing so. So it was you know, it's great to sit down with you guys. So two more panel ideas. Um, we got apologetics up, and we can do one about culture, you know, politics. There we go. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good. So one. if you want to see those, subscribe to the Why Jesus Network. Yes. Yeah. I gotta say, hanging out with you guys is a breath of fresh air because, yeah. like, you know, we're showing the world what the one true church looks like, and we could have many different views on these secondary doctrines, and yet hang out and yeah. have a fruitful conversation about it. So it's really cool. And eat some bagels. <laughs> yeah new yeah. york bagels and i think um you know people should feel comfortable having these types of conversations within their church and i and i hope if church leaders are watching they should foster an environment where people are allowed to question the calvinist uh approach of their church or they're allowed to question the charismatic approach of their church because us coming together and discussing the scriptures is really how we're growing spiritually and maturing yeah Amen. And so, friends don't let friends deconstruct. <laughs> wow. That should be a t-shirt. Um, all right, guys. Thank this you. Guy in his merch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm making a list, checking it twice. Right? Uh, all right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, follow all of these guys on social media and YouTube. All of their links will be in the description. Definitely check out their stuff. They have some amazing, amazing content. You will also see them here on the Why Jesus Network. We're hoping to do more panels like this with other Christian content creators. And... Uh, so like, share, subscribe, make sure you are tuned in so you don't miss the next one. God bless. See you guys on the next one. The one true church. <laughs> <laughs>